All right, here we are with the Business We've Chosen, Episode 4. After a little bit of delay due to circumstances beyond our control, I have Hagrid on the line, and he is doing all of the audio and all of the, I guess, the production work here. So hopefully this sounds better than the other podcasts. Uh, Hagrid, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. What's going on, buddy? Not much. What's up with you? Not much. Hopefully, like I was saying before, hopefully my voice will, will make it for the full two hours or so. Sure. Yeah, I apologize for it taking so long for us to record, but uh, I got a little sick there for a bit. Yeah, that's fine. What's the deal with the sickness? You uh, it prohibiting you from working, or are you still grinding it out? No, I grind it out. I mean, I'm okay. not I'm not wearing an N95 mask because it's not like the coronavirus or anything, so I think I'll, okay. I think I'll be all right. <laughs> okay. Nice. Um, so unlike our previous podcast episodes, this one seems quite organized. I have multiple outlines from you um, about stuff to talk about. So why don't we just get right into it? Sure. Yeah, I'm going to apologize to everyone right away for droning on in this first section, but I promise I won't talk too much after this this first topic. So the best way to start out any podcast is a question from Seville, right? So okay. the first question to start us off will be, Fat Dale rudely tweets, some say Billy Walters' downfall was due to doing media. Why are you special? So, to answer the OB sports better, I'm not special, like, in any way. In fact, I'm probably the inverse of special. You know, I'm probably as ordinary as forgettable as they come, and I don't know why anybody's going to even listen to this. Actually, how many people listen to this thing? Like, 20? Uh, yeah, not many. Okay, yeah, okay, <laughs> I think more than 20, but I'm not sure if SoundCloud counts, um... I think if you just refresh the page like a thousand times, it would say you got a thousand listens. So we probably have like 150 unique listeners or 200 unique listeners or something fairly small. Nice. All right. So, I mean, the only reason why I'm doing this podcast for really one reason, and that was just because, um, you know, no one really properly memorialized Groovin. You know, and if my voice is going to be live on the internet for years and years, you know, I'm going to use the platform to make sure, you know, Groovin wasn't forgotten. You know, um, just a couple of days ago was you know, two years um, since he passed, you know, and a lot of us miss him a lot, you know, and I feel like even with his uh, two year anniversary, like just so few people even mentioned him and, you know, it was kind of, kind of sad not to see too many mentions about it. Right. Um, you know, and obviously I want to talk about Groovin before myself, because I mean, let's be honest, him dead, he probably still knows more about betting than I do. And I don't want to portray like we were close friends or anything like that. If anything, like, um, you know, I wasn't part of like the RTP crew, like roughing the punter, but Groovin and I would be like the only ones up like super late at night, like, you know, right now we're podcasting, what is it, 10 o'clock? You know, so this is kind of like usually when I start doing a whole bunch of work. So Groovin and I would talk late late at night, and, um, you know, he was the best. He would, you know, always be awake for, for any questions that I would, I would possibly have. And I think it was, like, pretty much a disgrace that when he passed, there were basically no memorials from anyone in the sports betting scene other than Seville and RTP, right? Like, you know, you didn't see the non-touts of the world. Forget the touts first, like, just... Let's go like non-touts, like the DPPs of the world. You know, like where was where was the story, Dave? Right? Someone should have at least acknowledged him. And I really think that even if the touts that he went after and that went after him, you know, back and forth on Twitter, like they just should have said nothing instead of instead of cheering his death. I thought that you know it was pretty inappropriate. Um, and I think I think Sam on the other last podcast talked about it a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think that you know it's pretty upsetting. Um, and really, the only people, and uh, by the way, we're going to have to throw in a couple jokes here from, you know, that I was uh, told to throw in. 
Really, the only people who should have cheered his death were the uh, boxed wine vendors, because that's what Groovin's estate's probably being spent on. Uh, <laughs> that's where he ate? <laughs> yeah, yeah, unfortunately. The, the box, <laughs> box wine industry is doing pretty well right now, I think. Uh, and then customers at halal carts, because Groovin was a notorious price fixer of uh, halal carts. So, uh, what is a halal cart? Uh, some ethnic food that I don't eat. So okay. Sure. <laughs> So I guess actually one of the first questions I wanted to throw back to you was like, what was your impression of Groovin, you know, before he passed? Yeah. So, um, I think I started following people on like sports betting stuff, maybe in like 2016 or 2017. And I followed Groovin maybe like six months before he passed away. And the, it's very confusing following, you know, anyone in Seville, especially Groovin, because there's so many inside jokes and like jokes on jokes, and there's a lot of context that you need to understand for stuff to make sense. Right. And with Groovin, it's like that on steroids. So I would see all his tweets, and you know, about mm -hmm. none of them made any sense to me. <laughs> and but obviously, it's pretty clear he was a pretty big troll. So then I remember when like the news came about him passing, I was like, this can't be a real thing. Like this must be some part of the troll, you know? And I. I remember for a week, I think a lot of people in the Twitter sphere like me were kind of confused, like, this must be like some act or something. Um, but I never I never really knew much about his betting. I mean, you say like in the grave, he knows more about <clears throat> betting than you still. Was he like a, a big time better or like betting huge on some sport? Did he have like a specialty or was he just, I was kind of under the impression he was a general advantage player, kind of played some bad lines, kind of had some idea of where to bet and when but not he didn't strike me as someone like with the dream machine or something so i don't want to speak out of turn because again we weren't super close friends but from my conversations with him yeah he was more of you know he understood the market to an absolute expert level right like he once told me that he didn't actually even need an nfl model he could just bet the numbers and his knowledge of the market was basically unparalleled. Now, whether, I don't know how he was getting his edge per se, like whether or not, you know, he was part of like some larger group or, you know, he was working alone. Like I really, for, I'm really in no position to talk about that, but really, sure. th really the thing that he taught me was a lot of the, the market stuff, right? So it was pretty obvious that this was a person who was, you know, sports betting the same way that, you know, you would, you know, would trade like a traditional legacy market or something like that. Sure. Yeah, he definitely seemed to be in tune with stuff. I remember one tweet about he trolled someone, not even really a troll. He was just like, yeah, you know, luckily, like, I know what I'm doing. So I'm able to sit on my couch with an odd screen all day and, like, make a comfortable living or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so here's another one. So I wasn't sure, like, this podcast, it's kind of weird, right? It's like mostly the Seville guys are probably listening to it. So all those guys are like super sharp, right? I don't know how many like noob betters are actually listening to this, but like one of the things I would say for a noob better, and I was I was thinking about how I wanted to, you know, talk about sports betting on this, because to be honest with you, like, you know, we'll get to what, what I do. You know, I think I could help out the newer people sniff out the BS from the non-BS. One of the things that Groovin was awesome at is he could set prices on anything basically before the market's even open, right? And that's how you can tell who's actually someone who possibly has an edge versus someone who doesn't, right? Like all these touts that give out picks after the markets have been set and there's, you know, you know, news has been digested and they're giving out picks later in the week. Obviously that's like not as, 
you know, indicative of any type of like sharp knowledge, anybody can just give out a side, right? But if you can set a price before the market's even set and that price is pretty freaking accurate and let's just say the market opens up a little off and the market always goes like towards your prices, you know, like obviously there was that, the bet fart noise account, right? The world's greatest uh, betting exchange. You know, he was able to set prices even really before, for, before anyone because he just understood like how the market, you know, price things. So I think that's, a good piece of knowledge to, for like newer betters, you know, not, obviously not the sharps like Seville, like they understand this stuff. You know, if you find someone who can set a price on stuff, you know, that's probably someone who you should probably listen to more than someone who just, you know, picks sides and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Setting prices is useful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like it, it, it seems like super obvious and obviously the Seville guys will be like, duh, of course. But you no, know, I think like a, a lot of newer people, they just listen to people yeah well of course yeah. yeah you listen to someone who's an idiot and they're like oh this team's for sure gonna win or whatever once so, yeah i mean thinking about things in price is even some of the guys who win you know there's a lot of touts that like that win that i'll fade you know they re- you read their reasoning on stuff and it's like oh this game is just like an over um you know <laughs> regardless of the number it's an over or pass that sort of stuff yeah exactly um, is usually kind yeah, exactly. of a red flag yeah exactly hashtag at any price right so right yeah so i think that's just like a really good tidbit for like anybody who's like new with the scene like this is a good telltale sign of like whether or not someone has any idea what they're talking about or not so i'm actually kind of glad you answered the grooving question the way you did because since no one memorialized him you know people on twitter like yourself like if they didn't pay close enough attention like, they only knew this one side of Groovin, which was, you know, relentless watchdog, right? Like, you know, OCD, just, yes. don't, just going after people nonstop. Relentless, yeah. <laughs> it was just, just relentless. Like, there was just no off switch with Groovin, right? It was incredible. Yeah, and it's, you know, I used to always joke, you know, I hope I do anything in life with the same passion that Groovin did, you know, making sure that the truth right. came out on Twitter. But here's the thing. Groovin was this very real like highly accessible AP who would freely give away knowledge to like almost anybody who asked without ever asking for anything in return. Like if you go through his Twitter feed, like these like accounts that like are nobodies, like 200 followers, like a hundred tweets, he would reply back to them sometimes and give them actual market information. Like this was a very special person who was willing to give away information that you really can't get anywhere else. Right? Like, so sports betting, you know, we could probably get into this later, but like, it's got a whole bunch of different disciplines, right? So right now you have to like know data, you probably have to know a little coding, you probably got to know the math, you probably have to understand markets, you probably have to have some social skills, although I pretty much fail on that, that regard. Nobody can, you can't really find the information in the books about like, you know, if the Vegas brick and mortars don't move, but penny moves, you know, is this a, you know, faking of the move, right? Like stuff like that, like you couldn't learn that stuff in a lot of books, but Groovin would freely answer any question that you ever had about stuff like this, right? He was really special in that regard. And when he died, there was a pretty big void for me, right? So I work alone. I don't really have anybody to ask any questions to. But whenever I did have questions when he was alive, he always answered them. For people on Twitter who just know him as this relentless watchdog type person, you know, it, it's it's really unfortunate. I got a, I guess I got a little angry when people didn't talk about his death at you know i'm not saying you had to go dig into the guy's life and dox him or anything like that you know but I, you know i figured someone should have just said something right and nobody said anything like not Thule, like i said dpp before like just anybody in the sports buddy to just not i will say this even people who talk to him every day it took them three days to find out that he was dead yeah 
like a lot of people didn't even know his last name. But I guess I also didn't really get angry, but I kind of took his death kind of hard for someone I didn't even really know, kind of irrationally, I think. Um, Had you ever met him in person? Or oh, my no? God. Oh, my God. No, no. Okay. And you talked to him on the phone or would you just be like messaging him? No, just message. I never, never once spoke to him on the phone. But this isn't, gotcha. but this isn't abnormal for someone like me. Like I said, other than I talk to maybe like five people a day. <laughs> like that's pretty sure. much, that's pretty much as big as my circle gets. Um, yeah. You know, makes so, sense. I mean, I'm probably less than five, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I basically talk to animals more than I do people at this point. Right. Um, so I took his death like kind of hard for someone I didn't know. Um, one, obviously, because I respected him in the field so much. And really, you know, if I'm being honest, like he had a pretty major financial impact on my life. Like teaching me markets in sports betting actually helps me later on in life when I start, you know, trading, you know, derivatives and stuff like that. And then... Here's another topic, just like this idea that sports betting, like you might almost have to have like really successful OPSEC, you know, operational security and anonymity. And like Groovin was like a, a, was great at this, right? So actually one of the things that I have noticed was I'm like one of the earlier Twitter accounts, like on the Civil list. In fact, now I'm, I'm the oldest, but Groovin was even before me. And even back then, 2000, early 2008, late 2007, he had this idea of anonymity and OPSEC completely figured out whereas you know i make the mistake of being a public person which is why i end up in the situation that i am now working you know by myself right like i don't i don't really have anonymity um and that was a mistake that i made you know once i, I took this name and i started like registering a whole bunch of services this way right there's just no unraveling it now at this point you know so when you think about like his anonymity and his OPSEC. There's like a, other contexts of life where you, this can apply to like gambling, beating player profiling, social media. Like what do you share on social media? Uh, cryptocurrencies, like, you know, it's super easy. Like, you know, your grandparents, you know, if they had a million dollars, no one's breaking into their house and stealing a million dollars, right? It's probably like in bonds or gold or, or whatever. But with crypto, you know, Someone wants to go grab, you know, a million dollars in BTC off a cold wallet. They just break into your house, kidnap you, stomp you out, steal your computer, right? So it's different. Like, you have to have really good op OPSEC. You know, even even social issues like economic class tensions, like, you kind of have to have, like, really good OPSEC nowadays. So he had, like, all these things figured out. Um, but because you had these things figured out, people didn't really know the real grooving. So he passes and this, like, titan kind of of, of the industry almost. He just gets lost and forgotten. And I just think that that was uh, kind of unfortunate. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, of course. Um, what do you know how Groove and Mahoven originated? Like that name? What does that mean? Oh, my God. Yeah. So someone told me this story. So apparently uh, it's a really dumb story, by the way. But I mean, all Seville stories are pretty dumb. He was supposedly like in high school on a debate field trip. Like, I guess like there was like a debate tournament or whatever and he was he was like you know i guess out of state or whatever and they were staying in a hotel and then there was curfew but someone f and they would put like little pieces of tape on the door and if the tape broke then they knew knew you broke curfew so group <laughs> damn so groovin breaks out of his room and cuts all the pieces of tape because they just can't punish everyone um <laughs> so i guess what happens is this i guess this this gay man comes out and sees all the tape broken out, and I guess the gay man was the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess he was the um, the chaperone, 
And the, the chaperone goes, oh, boy, there's some real groovin' behoovin' running around here in the hotel tonight. <laughs> and that's that's how the name gets born. So oh, that's, wow. that's that's what I was told. Pretty by, good. That's what I was told by an <laughs> RTP guy. Okay, and what is RTP? You've said that a few times. Uh, roughing the that punter. was a blog? That's like a form, Roughing the Punter. Okay. Yeah, so um, a lot, of, a whole bunch of sharp guys in that, too. You know, and this was in the... 2010 2012 yeah they still have a chat box even now um so oh, when, wow. so when groovin passed you know obviously groovin was a maniac he was constantly in contact with people in the chat box you know he just stopped sure he just stopped replying one day so that's how they knew to, to start looking so i was you know, gotcha yeah kind of sad so i got a few groovin questions beirut player he asked fondest groovin memory so this is going to be another stupid inside joke like you said with groovin like everything was an inside joke but one of the things that's evil did is um a lot of people got stitched tweets of stuff like usually it's like really bad tweets from you know degenerate tweet of the year nominees but i actually i actually got a stitch tweet of a dm that groovin sent me and it's like a really inside joke but it's actually also pretty poignant too. And he wrote, "Sometimes you look in the mirror and you're the Doctor Bob. You know, you're the Doctor Bobbert, meaning Doctor Bob. Sometimes you look in the mirror and you're the Bob Bobbins, meaning Harala Bob. And then other, and then other times you look in the mirror and you're the Square Book Chris. And basically, it was like, it was a, a really poignant statement and in Groovin's own special way about we were talking about like when your edge disappears like how do you actually determine these things and he was ba he basically wrote that to me as the the final line of our discussion on you know how you know when do you know when your edge is actually gone you know it's, it's really sad to read because it's like one of the last dms he sent me so i have it i have it over my computer monitor so that's probably my fondest memory because i always look up when i'm going through a stretch of like really bad variants you know and i start to worry i'm like you know is the is the edge gone you know I guess if you don't question that, I don't know if you're actually really doing this at any type of level. And if you don't question it and you just donkey off money, you know, nonstop, like, I don't know, you're probably going to end up broke in the long run, like a lot of these guys do that should probably quit. So that's probably my fondest memory of him. Um, Why is Haralabob Bob Bobbins? I don't know. Just something. <laughs> something. I think it's because it's like gotcha. so many Bobs in it or whatever, in his name. He just calls him the Bob Bobbins. <laughs> And then I had another another tweet about not about Groovin specifically, but I wanted to throw it back to you first. So Rick Chatham, one of your guests, sure, uh, he tweeted. So I'll, I'll ask you first: Who had the largest influence on your sports betting career? Do you know? I would say, yeah. There's actually a guy that I met through Twitter that introduced me to a lot of people and like got me some accounts and some ways to get down more money, etc. This was maybe three years ago, two or three years ago. That for sure is, it was kind of like a Groovin type thing where, you know, a big time better who just randomly like responded to some Twitter questions and like hooked me up kind of. Um, yeah. So I'd say that not too many. I mean, I, I think I'm a little unique in that my first job out of college was um, trading stock options. So it's not that similar, but slightly similar like a lot of the things you would learn about quote the market would apply in both instances um so i think that but for sports betting specifically yeah for sure there's been like one guy who helped me out a pretty good amount i mean in terms of like financial how how well that relationship worked out for me versus him you know it's like 
kind of unfair. I feel like I should be paying him money every month or something, you know? <laughs> that's that's kind of how I felt with Groovin. After school, did you do the stock option trading on your own or did we prop desk or work for a firm? Uh, I worked for a firm for a few years. There's basically like, there's like 10 firms that trade stock options. Um, and I just went to work at one of them. And then after a few years of that, quit. Um, and I still actually trade options um, like by myself right now, but it's it's a lot different than sports. It's uh, it's a lot of fixed costs, a lot of capital costs. You know, you can't bet on credit and just like log onto some website and get data for free. It's uh, it's a lot more costly. So at like current net worth levels, I spend more time on the sports than the option stuff. Oh, we'll get to that later because I got I've got questions for you. Um, sure. <laughs> so then he also asked, "Who is the smartest person you've met through betting, and who is the dumbest?" Um, <laughs> trying to think. I I don't know if I've met anyone who is all that smart that I have met through betting. Like I've definitely met some smart people, but I haven't really met anyone that I feel is like, whoa. Or something usually they might know something i don't but it's like once you know it now you're even you know it's not like a an accumulated sort of knowledge so in terms of like smart people i've met betting i wish the answer was higher um i feel like i'm trying to talk to new people constantly and meet new people but it's just really hard because one nobody sports bets two nobody's smart three Anyone that is smart that does sports bet probably doesn't want to talk to you. So it's like <laughs> kind of an uphill battle. Yeah, no, it makes sense. In terms of the dumbest, I mean, I don't really want to name names, but I've met a lot of dumb people in sports betting. Oh, I mean, I have no problem naming names. Uh, we can. <laughs> I mean, especially like, it's funny. I There's a few people in like sports betting Twitter, if you will, that I kind of know. And the persona is very different than the person. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, hopefully this won't, uh, this podcast won't destroy my brand either, but you know, we'll deal with the consequences as they come. Um, yeah. Like, and for, for instance, your brand would be confusing because like if I go to Hagrin BTC or Hagrin NFL, like I have no idea what Bitcoin is. I have no idea what the NFL is. So I read these tweets and like, it's impossible for me to judge, you know, is this useful? Is it not? What is he even talking about? Um, yeah. So in instances where someone might be a lot smarter than me, it's like, how would I know? Uh, nothing I tweet is useful. Absolutely nothing. Okay. Um, <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, no, nothing. Nothing's useful. I would suggest that like, if anybody listens to this and they do have a question, I think anybody will know that if they tweet at me, I will spend the time to write a pretty detailed answer back. But I really only know like four or five things. Well, I'm not, I'm not very well-rounded. I know computers, sports, running, and that's basically it. So yeah, so you know, if you have any of those questions, you know, feel free to ask. I'll, I'll always answer. But like, nothing I tweet is useful. The NFL account, I just didn't want to bombard people. So like, Twitter's broken, right? So, architecturally speaking, they thought that hashtags when they first created Twitter, that hashtags were gonna like split off certain pieces of content so that you could only see the content that you wanted. But hashtags are a joke, right? It's like you can't actually follow a hashtag that's actually right. even remotely popular. So what I did is I just started creating, you know, tons of accounts, right? This way, people who weren't interested in like League of Legends betting, you know, that I could, you know, spare them, you know, having to read esports tweets. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then and then a lot of people hate crypto, right? Like I know I remember PSU. He once said, "Like, why does anybody even care about this?" And I replied back, "I mean, I can answer you, but like, do, do either of us 
care enough to get into this? And he was like, no. You know, so I try to like keep it as specialized as possible. So that's kind of like a Twitter architecture problem that I've solved by using multiple accounts. Oh yeah, and obviously crypto. If you guys have crypto questions, I can pretty much answer anything. Actually, the nicest compliment I ever got was from a civil person who called me the Groovin Mahoven of uh, cryptocurrency. <laughs> so I, I gotta be honest, it's like the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. Um, nice. Yeah. Um, so for me, yeah, I think that, oops, that I was going to say that the Twitter is kind of tricky because I feel like there's a lot of people like me and maybe you, and I think some of the civil people that like, I don't miss a tweet, you know, like I haven't missed a tweet in years. Um, I'm like, it's always open Twitter for me. Um, so I like consume it that way. But there's a lot of people, and like this is the way for Twitter to make more money probably, is like who check it occasionally, you know, like any other website or any other thing. Um, so like the f they're, it's difficult for them because they have to cater to the two crowds that want like two different things. But it's so frustrating for me when like, you know, when they change all their shit all the time and like, oh, show me the latest tweets on top. Like the, am the amount of things you have to do to just like keep it this way, you know? Well, you <laughs> I want to see the tweets in order. <laughs> this, well, isn't, this shouldn't be that hard. Well, you know how to get around that, right? Yeah, I've seen like the things around it, but the, it seems like sometimes those things will stop working and then my phone especially will like every month or something just switch back to the other version. I mean, it's a, a minimal effort for me to switch it back but it's kind of interesting i don't even know how someone would consume twitter without like seeing every tweet um, but i guess if you just follow a million accounts and the twitter's constantly going you just like log on for an hour every day and enjoy that hour and then move on to the next yeah so i'm that type of person i don't i don't leave twitter open i've got better things to do with my life than than i don't tweets. <laughs> um but i've got i've got i've got an easier solution for you all right you, you just make a list and instead of following people, you just put the person on the list, and then you throw the list up. You'll get no ads ever, and it's always chronological. That was right. it. That's a Norm Gambles slash Groovin Mahoven trick. So I just use lists. Okay. You never use your timeline, never. Because gotcha. the, the timeline's a joke. And it just goes to show you how terrible of a company Twitter is. Their best product, TweetDeck, has no ads and is always in chronological order. Like It's just, yeah. it's just the dumbest company ever, ever designed. Yeah, they don't seem like they really know what they're doing. No, it's just stupid. So for me, obviously, largest influence is Groovin. Groovin, again, he taught me all the things that I couldn't learn on my own, right? Like, I could learn the math doing, you know, Khan Academy courses. I could learn the code on my own. You know, there's a gazillion YouTube videos. It's never been easier to bootstrap data now, right? Like, with our packages and stuff. You know, so it's, like, super easy to get all the bigger parts of like building a model or like understanding the data but like the actual market knowledge like you know what to look for who's moving lines like how this stuff actually works like Groovin taught me all that stuff so he was obviously my biggest influence the smartest person i've met oh, so this is complicated so the seville guys they all have their areas and as a collective just for betting those guys really do know everything that there is right the problem is, is that, you know, if you just go by Twitter feeds, like we've been talking about, the signal to noise ratio is, you know, it's ridiculous. But every single one of those guys has their has their strength, right? Like some of these guys are doing it at the absolute highest level, too. Some of these guys are deriving their sole income from sports betting. So clearly these guys know, you know, pretty much, you know, all there is. And even people who, you know, that I don't necessarily agree with everything that they say, we'll, we'll, we'll get to him later. But uh, plus EV, right? There's no doubt he's really strong at math. Everything else he, he says is bad, 
but he's <laughs> he's su- he's, su- he's super strong at math. You know, and he's a super, he's a super nice guy too. You know, good family man. Um, but we'll we'll, we'll get to, we'll get to his follies later in, in the crushing Seville section. Okay. Um, but as a collective, really, those guys are some of the smartest. The problem that you'll have though is like if you know anybody listens to this and they're they go through the contrarianville list you're not really going to get much from following us on twitter right like you're just not going to and it's not like i'm friends with any of these guys either it's like one tweet every couple of months you pick up something right uh actually one one good one would be seth right seth does the web and parcel stuff for college basketball i mean that stuff is groundbreaking right and in fact there's a lot of important college basketball people that follow seth because of it you know, you learn a lot about that. Then they had a problem with figuring out parcels, I think, for... I forget I forget the actual problem that they had. Cajun Cooks, I believe, is the one who figured out the math behind um, actually getting parcels sort of automated. You know, so the guy is brilliant at math, right? So, like, these guys have the skill sets. You just have to, like, really pay attention to, you know, what their, what their strengths are and the information that they give out. But, like, following them on Twitter is not that useful. But they're, they really are some of the smartest guys I've, I've met in sports betting. The dumbest, the dumbest, listen, just open up the nitrogen sports chat box for about 20 minutes and you're going to want to stick an ice pick through your freaking brain. Um, (laughs) Those are some of the dumbest people I've ever met. And like, I thought crypto troll boxes were bad, like BitMEX, you know, people just spamming to the moon or whatever. The nitrogen chat box is just, I mean, that's like the dregs of the earth. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Those are literally the dumbest people I've met. I mean, Tweety's a moron. Philly Godfather's a moron. Uh, (laughs) crack i mean that guy just lies through his teeth but he's not dumb he's just a liar yeah but yeah so i would say that those those are the probably the smartest and the dumbest people i've i've met so i actually wanted to bring this up to you too so this was the last thing about Groovin that he taught me or we talked about i want to get your thoughts on it because it's a conversation i wish i wish i don't know i guess i wish sports betters had a lot more of and it was a little little bit more open about it because like you know you're a big boston red fan right um of course he would probably benefit from this conversation. <laughs> you know, I asked Groovin in a DM verbatim. I went back and looked. You know, how does a successful sports better know when his edge is gone? And how does he quit betting before he gives it all back? Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's like most people that have success in, you know, trading or markets or sports betting, most of those people just run good. Um, they might have like a small edge, but think they have a big edge or they have a negative edge and actually had a small edge and uh, like those people are just kind of destined to go broke you know even like it's hard for me to know because i'm not this old yet but boston it's like the dude's just crazy you know you can't like you can't talk with logic or like your brain to him he's just like an absolute lunatic madman who who believes eight things and like that's just his life so for him like of course he's gonna go broke you know he's betting tennis lines 10 cents worse than he could get on like the best the best website you know he's posting like some random guy minus 170 when you could bet 161 on pinnacle and he's like betting tennis by watching it you know maybe watching it you know (laughs) i'm not even sure if he's watching it Uh, he definitely has no idea what he's doing so (laughs) it's like someone like that is of course for sure gonna go broke someone who's like actually good if they like are thinking about how much the edge they have all the time and are like constantly evaluating, you know, I thought I had this, but then I realized this, what do I think my true edge is going forward, et cetera, et cetera. Like that person will probably 
get to a point where like, I don't know, the board looks fair to me or, Oh, I've, I haven't won over the last, you know, 1800 picks, even though I thought I would have like, maybe it's not going, maybe my stuff isn't as good as I thought it was. And I think more fundamentally, like regardless of the results, you probably should just, if you're betting something like every day, you know, if it's good or not, like regardless of the results, you know, like if, if you're, if the market's moving towards your number and like, you are generally correct on stuff. The results can be pretty crazy, but you should know that you know what's up. Like I, well, I talked about this on a previous podcast, but I started betting baseball last year for the first time ever, and I know nothing about baseball and spent a lot of time building what I thought was something pretty good. But it was like clear to me on like day three that I, my stuff was just absolutely worthless, and it was like time to go back into the lab. So I don't think it's that hard to to know that you don't have an edge if you're not keeping up with stuff, you know, um, if you had an edge at one point and then stop, it's like, what has come out? What might other people now know that that has happened in the last few years? Like for me, I've been doing it so short that anytime I'm betting something, I basically have like a new and improved model for every season. You know, I'd love to just like, like I bet college basketball every day. I'd love to just hit a button and have the college basketball stuff, you know, bet itself. But I'm like constantly tweaking it and, trying to improve it so that if I just went, you know, 18 months or four years or something like changing nothing and all of a sudden like the lines didn't move my way and I wasn't winning, it's like, well, yeah, it might not be any good anymore, you know? Yeah. So you said a lot. I think like the fact whether you're asking like, how does someone good at sports betting not give back all their money? And like my definition of being good at sports betting is not giving back all your money. So I don't really have an answer. It's just, that's like my definition of being smart is like knowing how good you are at something um, and either quitting or keep going or whatever. But if you think you're good and you're not like by my definition, you're like not good if you are off market on how good you are. <laughs> right. So I think we kind of agree or mostly agree. I should say, obviously, you know, the whole key to all of this is having a quantifiable edge right and understanding yeah this edge actually exists you know the market is actually going you know towards my edge although you know this is con the concepts of obviously clv penny midpoint close stuff like that yeah i think that it's you could have an edge and things could still be going your to your side of things but like let's say for instance you know, if you're me and you're not, you know, even if you're you're banging against some of the limits and some markets are moving, some markets aren't. Like I don't I don't move NFL markets. I mean, let's let's be honest. Like there's just an ocean of money and I just don't think the market respects anything that I bet. Yes, yeah, CLV probably means more to someone like me, but like let's say you're I don't know, Brett Favre, right? And you're moving golf markets, you know, twenty cents, right? How does how does that person know that if his edge is good or not? He could just be, you know, overwhelming the market with money for all you know. And then you could also have people that are just reaching into the the back of you know back of house, going into accounts and just steaming whatever this person's been betting because this person's won in the past, right? Like it's it's actually like a pretty complicated subject, I think. But I think the best you can do is like what you said. Like either you can quantify your edge and the minute the the, the edge is gone you just stop. Or, you know, you have to have some type of discipline that, you know, if you're going through a period of bad variance and the edge maybe still exists because you're just throwing so much money into the market that, uh, you know, you have enough you have enough discipline to quit. Uh, it's a really complicated question. I really wish people would talk about it more. Yeah, I think like the Massey Peabody stuff and the Rufus Peabody stuff in general is kind of like that where 
it's like a guy who's won a lot of money betting and like clearly knows what he's doing to some degree um and is posting stuff with an edge you know like i've had this nfl model it does these things that are mostly good and it shows these sides have x percentage edge but the difference between you know 2012 and 2019 is stuff kind of wasn't moving its way anymore and it was the same sorts of plays all the time you know it's like oh this team's terrible we're betting on them oh this team's amazing we're betting against them oh this team has all these injuries we're betting on them it's like i think you might be missing some information like there's some consistency with the teams you're betting on and against and that would be an example of like your edge your model's not good so your edge is still gonna say it's there but it's obviously not like you have to just be keeping up and making sure your model doesn't have any like consistent biases yeah i told i totally agree with that and it's funny that you should bring up messy peabody because that's exactly the example that i brought up in the dm with uh Groovin. that's pretty interesting that you brought that up so i want yeah like i don't i don't even bet nfl and i can tell you like it's just the same thing every time it's like oh this team's terrible we're betting on them you know and that might be a good bet but it's i th- you might need to better quantify terrible or you might better better <clears throat> you might need to better quantify injuries or something which like obviously if the model doesn't know which players are playing. That might be an issue. Uh, yeah, like <laughs> nothing will ever beat when I've got a clip of Rufus when he says that his model has no idea that Deshaun Watson graduated. <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> like, like, what are we even doing here if you don't know that Deshaun Watson has graduated? So, yeah, and you can still do some good stuff. And like in college football, or you know, maybe you could win early in the week if you were betting you know, totals or something like it just depends on what year it is and how sophisticated the market is and how much information is available out there. But now it's like, like you said, there's so many data sources that are easy to get if you don't know what you're doing that you just like need to be better. You know, there's too much stuff that's out there. In 1995, how could anyone have known, you know, play-by-play data for something? Mm -hmm. If you could get that, that might be useful, but now it's, you know, pretty easy to get it. And people summarize the statistics like you just got to, improve with what's out there yeah totally agreed actually i wanted to read something to you i found it while you were talking okay so plus ev wrote a two-part article for pinnacle it's called the the theory of everything okay and, and, and honestly the articles are they're, they're pretty good and okay. i have no problems writing for pinnacle i do have a problem when he wrote for guru elite or whatever nonsense tout site that was that by the way that was a tout site that tried to sell march madness picks one year and they basically broke everybody by the fourth day that they stopped giving out picks after the first first weekend and that's a site he wrote for so that just goes to show you his judgment all right so he writes basically about closing line value that is measuring a model success by how correlated it is with the movement from the line at the time the bet is placed to the closing line this is a good measure of success if and only if the market is reacting to the same signal as your model just later in time If you find a betting angle that nobody else in the world has, there is no reason why the market would catch up to you. You may have a great deal of positive expected value, but your CLV will hover around zero. I have thoughts about this statement. What do you think? Um, Yeah, I mean, I theoretically agree with it. If you're the be-all, end-all, end boss, and you are smarter than everyone in the world. So in that instance, yes. In every other instance, it's like, and the thing with that, like, I I agree with what he's saying, but I think a lot of people will justify to themselves, like, oh, you know, I didn't get CLV, but like, maybe the market's just not taking into account my angle. It's like, 
I don't know how many people are out there with what roles, but like I'm at least one. There's people out there that are like looking at the stuff they bet on at every second of the day. And if it ever goes like far enough from their number, they are betting it and they are moving it. So if there's someone out there like Favre, you know, uh, appears to be on Twitter that are like betting many, many limits at, you know, any, like any price that they think is good, the lines will like move to kind of whatever they think it is, you know, like if they're the end boss of the market. So like, I generally agree with that statement, but I think it's a little simpler and a little more instructive to just say like the market at close is pretty fair. Like you better have a pretty damn good reason why the line didn't move your way. Otherwise you're probably missing something in your model that the market has in theirs. Right. So I pretty much agree with you. For someone like me who, if I do bet a limit into something, maybe the market moves, maybe it doesn't, maybe, you know, sometimes Spinnacle just doesn't care if I, if I bang a limit. You know, I think, yeah, sure. I think that that makes sense, right? Like, you know, you could have some edge that the market's just not following. But at the same, in the same instance, like let's take the Donahue scandal, for instance. How many people knew about the Donahue scandal? Like four at one point, but just- Yeah, your boy, Philly Godfather. Yeah, there you go. Um, oh, yeah. Speaking of which, um, now is probably a good time to wish those guys, um, PGF and Spanky, uh, happy Chinese New Year. Because um, I guess it's the year of the rat, right? So, uh, oh. ha- happy Chinese New Year to uh, those two guys. Is that how he got out of prison? Because when I followed him on Twitter, he was always like, you know, I I was in prison for a year, and then I appealed, and I was one in a million shot, but it was like the biggest gamble of my life, and it paid off, and yeah. now I'm out. Yeah, he, got, he like ratted on everyone or something. I, I, I got a bridge to sell you if you believe that story. <laughs> but he did. He spent time in a prison and now is not in a prison. Right? Yeah, yeah. But that's okay. ba- that's basically how all these things work. Like I just recently listened to a podcast with a a really good real estate fraud guy. He basically was like robbing people of like 20, 30 millions with like shotgunning loans and stuff like that back before like things got like super automated. You know, you go to jail for 26 years, but you just keep rolling on people to get your sentence reduced like a certain number of levels. So that's probably what, what happened in that case. You'd have to pull the court docs, but I mean, this, I mean, I, I, have, a, I have a pretty good understanding of, I think, what happened there. So anyway, getting back to this article, actually, I want to I wanna commend him because I think Plus EV wrote something that was at least thought provoking, even if I don't fully agree with it. So like the Donahue scandal, right? Like there's like four or five people who know, but they're moving so much money that the market is still moving with them only because people can see that these accounts are betting certain things, right? So like if you're at the highest levels and you have this edge that nobody else knows about, you're probably going to still get CLV because they're going to be other people chasing your steam. So I do think that it's possible for like someone who's not moving markets in that type of manner with like, you know, just flushing, you know, millions and millions into the market on, on certain sides, you know, that, that statement of his is absolutely true. But like, if, you know, you have that inf- information that a referee is fixing games and the markets are steaming, and this is an edge that only you guys know about, but people can see that your accounts just aren't losing. And this happens. People reach into the back of accounts to see what people are betting all the time. I mean, even I do it and I'm a nobody, you know, this is, I, I do think that it's unlikely that you'll have an edge that just nobody else bets that you see no CLV whatsoever. Um, and that's kind of like where I am on that. But I, it's a really thought-provoking paragraph that he wrote. So. Yeah, it, I mean, it totally depends on the market too and like what you count as the close. You know, like in college basketball, Pinnacle will only be taking 
you know, somewhere between three and six grand on a side right at post. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you just bet, you know, nine grand on a 3K market right at post, you know, you will move the closing line. Right. In that it, you you bet it at the last second and moved it. So obviously, like whatever the thing is, a tip might not be exactly right, and there's some you know extenuating circumstances. But you better have like a good reason that you know you got to have a good reason because in these liquid markets, in college basketball sides, for example, how many people are out there? There must be like a hundred, like fifty to a hundred that are looking at the numbers right at post. And like, if it goes to 10, they're betting plus 10, or, you know, if it goes to minus seven, they're betting minus seven. So if you bet something, if you bet something for a hundred bucks at, you know, the night before, and it's just staying there or it's going the other way, like it's probably time to open the model up, see what's there. Yep. Totally agreed. Before we move on, I just wanted to read this Alan Boston tweet on the subject of quitting of quitting when you lose an edge. Sure. Good old Roy. Have him educate me. Yeah, he's talking about Roy Williams. Uh, good right. old Roy made sure to mention after he got completely outcoached in blowing a lead at VPI, I am down four of my seven top players. I am sure most coaches would love to coach what he has left. This man needs to retire. And Brett Favre replies back, oh, the irony. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I like that one. <laughs> yeah, because it's one thing you've got like Roy Williams, you know, he's kind of an old, nice guy. Probably not the, the smartest basketball mind out there. But like, you know, he gets good players on his team. They usually are pretty good. He's not doing that great. Maybe he could afford to brush up. And then you've got Boston, who's like, I mean, one time he tweeted out, I like this team. Well, it was like Maine or something. You know, I love the assistant. The assistant coach at whatever Vermont or some some Northeast school had got promoted to the head coach at some other school over there, and then the two schools are going to play each other. So his angle was, you know, these two coaches like each other; they're going to keep it friendly. There aren't going to be any blowouts. He tweeted out like, "I love Maine plus nineteen or you know plus twelve or whatever it was," and the actual line was ten off from whatever he said. So if he <laughs> tweeted like, "I love Maine plus fifteen, the actual line is twenty five, but it's like. What does that matter? You know, we're betting Maine. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> like there's levels of having lost it in Boston. I mean, the dude, the dude bets tennis is kind of all you need to know. Yeah. Well, listen, I bet tennis too. So yeah, well, you probably have a clue what you're doing or yeah, at I, least just bet bad prices. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually, I'm actually really sad that the Australian open is over because that was, that was pretty profitable. Oh, nice. I actually watched, I had it on the TV. I'm actually in Australia right now and I, Went to a few of the matches and had it on the TV pretty much the whole time, but I didn't bet on anything really. Nice. Yeah, so um, apologies if my memory's bad. I mean, it's been like a couple of weeks. I don't really remember that well. Sangren versus Kevin Anderson. That was definitely the wrong side, but that was end up, ended up being a winner. That was ended okay. up being pretty profitable. Kevin Anderson had been hurt. I think he won the first two sets, but then you could watch him start to fade. And then when he was... Um, when he was um, broken in the third, you could see that the wheels were starting to fall off. So fourth and fifth set bets on Sangren. San Sangren, I think is his name. Yeah. Um, and that was that was a pretty good bet. And then um, Kyrgios, you know, you could tell Kyrgios the wheels were falling off too in that last set. So, um, and he's a mental case. And we'll I, actually one of the more interesting sections that Dave Hess brought up to talk about some stuff that analytics says is true that maybe i have con a contrarian opinion on i do think that we'll 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 talk about that a little bit more there so that, that'll be interesting so i don't know i just want to close on groovin if anybody's listening and just thought he was an anonymous internet troll like just go through his timeline there's enough nuggets in there even still to this day there's enough like 
showing you like the values of points. Like this is for new betters, not for you know Seville, obviously, or you know sharper guys. There's enough information in there that you'll learn so much just just going through his timeline. Now, obviously, there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of trolling, but you know he was a good guy. He was an AP. He would literally answer any of your questions, and he never asked for anything back. Like he once asked me about like running sneakers once, but he never asked me for computer help. Not like not like Ghost Faith killer who likes to pm me and he thinks i'm his personal tech support which i just refuse to reply to that dude if you have a question just send it to me in a public t- uh, public tweet just don't dm me but yeah i mean groovin was super helpful to everyone you know just uh it's sad that he's gone and the world is definitely worse off without him for sure yeah agree with that did you ever find that uh that sound clip you had oh no um i'm gonna put it at the beginning um, okay nice yeah I'll, sp- I'll spice it in and if anybody's okay you know, hopefully I'll, I'll get it. You, it's um, Groovin singing "You'll Never Walk Alone." It's it's pretty it's pretty emotional. I think his Groovin's jersey's hanging in a pub in Philadelphia somewhere. So it's pretty sad for a bunch of us to think about it. And I'm glad actually one one person was able to go and speak to his dad and stuff. So that was it was good that at least the dad knew that there were these people out there on the internet that that really cared for his son and uh, yeah. You know, it's sad, but you know, at least at least the dad knew that it was just you know there were people out there that that missed him. You know, right. All right. So next on the intro, next on the uh, outline is a quick intro about me. I don't even know if I want to get into this. All right. So intro. Let's start with I'm not a sports. I'm not a pro sports better. I never have been, but I would qualify myself as an amateur with a quantifiable edge. So I guess if you're asking why you would be listening, I don't know. I don't know why I would listen to me either. I'd probably tune out now. But I do want to go over something real quick because this came up on my Twitter feed in the past. So I'm a engineer by trade. So I've actually written sports book software before. Back of house software, like player profiling, reporting, stuff like that. I don't know if it's being used anywhere. I don't know. I'm just a programmer. I refuse to comment if it's being used anywhere. But like I have four categories that I lump player profiles into with my code and it's basically like whale donkey retail recreational amateur ap and professional ape so before i go on like would you would you have any qualms with those categories or do you think that there's another level of betting that i'm not taking into account say them again so like uh the whale the donkey like your your big player that just you know donkeys your your floyd mayweather okay. uh retail recreational you know your 50 dollar better amateur ap this guy's not banging limits he's basically betting like maybe some props and stuff like that uh maybe he's got some sure. maybe he's got some clv but it's like more on smaller less efficient markets and then obviously the, the professional ap the sharp guy that you know yeah sure okay sounds reasonable all right so you know, obviously whales, you're catering, you're bending over backwards for these people. You're making sure you keep their business. That's the difference between a whale and retail recreational, just basically the service you give them. You know, retail recreational is pretty, that's like 85, 90% of people, I guess. So the professional AP, those are the accounts like, you know, Rufus and Jeff talk about this a lot, right? Like if they were to run a sports book, they would try to run a sharp sports book where they would take high limits right. and you know basically run a sports book more on the high liquidity side high volume side versus you know the the player profiling and banning stuff so you know professional ap my definition of a professional is it's your sole or main source of income which it you know that's sports betting just isn't for me your betting limits your rebetting limits um you have clv measuring against penny midpoint close 
Uh, these are like Groovin, Brett, Dig, Spoon, Rito, Perpetual Check, those type guys. You, the amateur AP, I would say, is more, um, you know, they're almost kind of like unicorns because it's almost a little bit enumerate to be an amateur AP, right? Like if you have an edge, you should probably be betting more or getting a bigger bankroll and just like, you know, trying to capitalize on that edge. It's super, sure. it's super hard to find edges. So it's kind of enumerate for me not to be, you know, putting more effort into sports betting. But obviously, like, amateur APs or, you know, people who have edges that aren't, like, super sharp betting a whole bunch, these are, like, the worst users you could have, right, as a sports book. Like, you're not able to lay off their action, like, right away. They're prob- If you do, like, a temporal analysis on their bets, you know, they're not betting exactly when the limits are going up. Um, you're probably not able to get these, you know, similar lines off screen, you know, like their information is just not as valuable as a, as a pro AP would be. Right. So these people are like terrible and that's why people ban, you know, the prop betters and stuff like that. These, these people are just not valuable to the sports book, right? They're just, you know, there's just nothing to be gained there. So that's how I would classify myself. I would say I would classify myself as like an amateur AP. Like I have some edges, but you know, at the same time, the market doesn't super respect what I bet. Oh, one other thing I wanted to point out too. So this is not going to be for many people because nobody's really on the other side of the counter. But since people are just copying lines anyway, you're not really doing any actual work as a you know a bookmaker at this point. You're basically just copying whatever. Hell, some places don't even limit liability. They just fucking move on air. One of the things I've seen is that you have to be super careful if you have a couple whales betting into you. Maybe like, all right, let's actually give a more useful scenario. Like, let's say, like, you're doing, like, a lot of cross-book action or, like, OTC. I don't know, like, what you have a – what you call it. But, like, you're betting, like, you know, off-market between, um, you know, bigger parties. Um, that's kind of – Yeah. Lot. All right. That's kind of a lot, of, a lot of what I do. OTC cross-book, sure. Yeah. Like, what do you call it? Um, I don't really do that much betting with anyone like that. I mean, I would just call that crossing because that's the term in um, stock option trading. Yeah, okay, yeah. But, oh, I mean, crossbook, I think, is kind of a poker term. OTC is kind of a finance term. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, okay. So one thing I would say is that always make sure that if you have this, like, whale donkey that you've been you've been betting into or who's betting into you, just always measure how sharp their plays are because I have seen these people get co-opted by, like, you know, Sharp Syndicate that tries to sure. – tries to sneak in a whole bunch of plays using the liquidity and then they bounce, you know, once, you know, people catch on, right? You're not doing that much as a bookmaker or if, you know, you're doing these, you know, crossing deals or whatever. Just always kind of evaluate the the whale donkey, right? So like let's try to avoid do you how much do you know about DFS? Much? A little bit? Uh depends who I'm compared to, but I'll say medium. All right. So do you remember Condia? Uh yeah. All right, yeah. So Condia was, you know, the big the big guy. He was running things for the longest time. And then, you know, Max Dollary comes along and just breaks him, right? You had, he basically had no idea that this person who was betting a whole bunch, you know, just how sharp this guy was, he just thought it was bad variance and he just kept, you know, giving it back, giving it back, giving it back. You just want to be super careful, like if you're crossing, doing OTC stuff, just always evaluate the the whale guy because they can be co-opted at any point. You may think you have an edge over this one guy betting. It's just also why fixed salary cap games and DFS are just broken. You really can't qualify quantify your edge because you just have no idea how strong the opponent is you could be working against a syndicate for all you know i'm a person who works alone you know so i can't really tell if someone i've even beaten in the past is going to still be the same strength you know tomorrow just always just evaluate how sharp those plays are because i've seen people bounce in and out 
Um, you know, really sharp syndicates try to use liquidity like that. So back to me. Yeah, I still work a real job. I am, what's the made up title that they gave me? Principal software and systems engineer. I don't know. One day they told me to come up with a title and that's what I gave my gave myself. And I was kind of like raised like old school with my parents. So like the betting stigma is like a real thing in my family. And then not to sound conceited, because this is going to sound terrible, but like I didn't go to an Ivy League school to be a sports better. Although, obviously, there are people who are listening to this now who make way more money than me sports betting. So they would say that I'm the idiot and I would probably agree with them. But it's just like something, you know, like I come, I came from like a really strict Irish family. So like sports betting really wasn't a thing. Also, I'd like to point out that having that income has always been good for me because it relieves a lot of pressures, right? So like, let's say you're going through a stretch of bad variants. Like I never feel the need to chase. I never feel the need like in the market, like to close losing positions. I never have the need to, you know, like if I, if I really feel like the market's going against me and the pressures are real, like I've got to pay my rent because I'm living off of either trading or sports betting income. Like I just never had those pressures and I feel like it makes, helps me make good decisions. And then honestly, I'm kind of a person who needs structure. Like as you've seen from all the outlines I sent you, like I'm pretty type A. When I don't have structure, I think having a full-time job has actually kind of kind of helped me. And it's not like I have like a super serious full-time job. Um, I work all the time, but I have like full autonomy. It's not like really a job. Like I, I love it. I enjoy it. And it's actually also not my main source of income either. Um, trading is now. It's just something that it keeps me keeps me structured and stuff. So that's why I don't I don't consider myself a pro, even if I do have, you know, some type of edge. And then I actually, I do consulting. Probably the coolest thing that I do, and probably the only cool thing about me is that I do these things called um, blue and red team engagements. I am a consultant for a security firm. And a lot of times like big companies will hire security professionals to break into their stuff. I'm the person who they hire to break into stuff. So I'll do like physical penetrations, RFID cloning, you know, then I'll, get into your network, try to see what passwords I can sniff, stuff like that. So it's cool because it all these things kind of like all interact with each other, right? Like my coding experience helps me with sports betting. It helps me with trading, right? Like my sociopathic tendencies from beating other people up in predictive markets helps me be a good liar for red team engagements, like stuff like that. Like everything kind of like interacts with each other. Sure. So, so all that stuff is um, like it all kind of interacts. In terms of how I started sports betting, um, I love these stories, by the way. I don't think I don't think you ever told your sports betting story. You basically just like you were an options trader, and then like you just kind of got into this. Um, I started uh, when I was in college. I was listening. It was kind of a good intro, I think, because it's what we talked about earlier about setting a price. So I used to listen in my earlier days, a, a younger version of me that not necessarily endorse his opinions. Um, I would listen to the Bill Simmons cousin Sal guess the NFL lines oh podcast. Boy. Oh boy. And uh, I was like, oh, cool. Like they try and guess it and then they like see what it is. At this point, I still didn't know. You know, I was just taking Sal's word, you know, if you will, for whatever the <clears throat> opener or whatever the line was. But I started just kind of being like, oh, this team played this team, you know, like I guess what you would call, you know, 1960s handicapping or something. Like, oh, this team should be minus four or something. So I kind of got uh, started that way and then kind of went down the rabbit hole, started like pricing stuff up a little bit. And then for a few years was just, you know, betting bad lines, had like some accounts, like betting NFL props, that sort of stuff. And then maybe, maybe three years ago, I started like, I think the first season I ever had like a real model, like ready to go with something like I have a fair was maybe 2018. And then I was betting, you know, 
tiny and I had, you know, some deals and stuff and pieces and then, you know, went okay. And then 2019, I mean, like before 2000, before January 1st, 2019, every bet I made was kind of like, oh, I made this bet. I hope it's good. I think I, you know, maybe have enough money to pay for it, but like bankroll is effectively zero, you know, um, just betting money that, you know, I hope I win or if I lose, I'll have to take some money out of my savings account or something like that. And then January 1st, 2019, I was like, okay, I'm just going to start tracking every bet I make um, and like betting on stuff and like betting the correct amount and really like trying. And then I started doing that full time in the beginning of 2019. And now I do that now and rarely win, but I'm still betting size. So we have a chance of winning. <laughs> nice. It's so tough. Cause like the, the stretches you can go through, oh, it's brutal. especially with, I mean, as you know, as anyone who bet, like if you have made more than you know, 200 bets in a month, you like understand that you can just lose for like months and months. And I mean, years potentially I'm, I'm, a, I'm on a good start for that, but like the randomness in it is so sick, especially if you luckily for me, I don't watch sports. Like the only sports I watch are tennis and golf. And I don't even bet on tennis. And when you're watching college basketball or even just following the score, you're just going to have like 10% of your bets are going to fall within a basket or maybe even higher, maybe 15 or 20. If you're betting like second halves, first halves, it's just going to be like, Oh, can you believe this team hit a three or can you believe they, they missed two free throws? Can you believe like they just happen all the time. And if you get 12 or 15 in a row that go against you, it's, it's tough. Like the, when you do this for a living, the, edge you have compared to how things could go poorly is a scary ratio <laughs> you know, like if you're putting on you know a thousand dollars of ev in a night you might 10 percent of the time be down 15k or something so it's just tricky i've been doing it for a long time and i feel like i understand randomness but it's it's crazy it's real yeah so you could lose forever <laughs> yeah so actually i have a whole bunch of questions so do you feel like all right, so before I ask my question, one thing that I've always disagreed with on the – did you ever listen to any of the Bullock podcasts? Um, yeah, I went back – this year was the first year I listened to any of them, and I went back to listen to ones with guests that I had heard were good. Um, <laughs> so, like, for example, I listened to the Sprager podcast, which I actually really liked. You know, the per it's, it's funny, like, the Twitter personality is one thing, and then you hear them talk. Sam on the last podcast was kind of like that, you know? every tweet is like, you're wrong, or you're an idiot, like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then you talk with them, it's like, oh, it's a very reasonable person talking about, like, interesting things, thinking about them. Uh, so I, I've probably listened to 15 of the Bullock pods. Okay. So, um, yeah, Sprager's super sharp baseball. I mean, ridiculously sharp. And you can tell he's super sharp because, like, he, remember how I was saying, like, you can set, like, a fair price on stuff? Like, he could tell you things about the lineup the next day the night before sometimes like he's randomly tweeted stuff like that and like there's like little tidbits like that that you know this person understands the sport and how to price that in better than you know anybody else really that's you know posting just random baseball picks he's a super super sharp dude so one of the things on the bullock podcast i've always disagreed with and uh seth Byrne, who actually is one of the two people in seville that i do talk to fairly regularly him and necessary paper they both said the same thing and their advice about sports betting was don't don't sports bet. So before I get into that, so did you learn did you learn any lessons about like how to lose 
when you were trading options? Like, did you like figure out like the randomness and the variance part of things from trading and that, that that helped you or not at all? Not really. Um, I think there's a lot of things that it just takes. You just have to do it or experience it to actually understand it. And I think the losing is kind of like that. Like this year is like the first, I basically like had never lost before this year. And when you lose, it's like, well, of course you're going to lose at some point. I mean, even Favre one time tweeted, like, I guess at one point I'll have a losing year. Like randomness is so real and that exists. And it's hard to realize that these things that have, you know, a 5% chance of happening happen sometimes because especially if they've never happened to you. So I just run like a lot of Sims with like what I think my edge is, what bets I'm making, how big I'm betting, like what are worst case, best case scenarios, what are, you know, five percentile, 95 percentile outcomes um, to try to better understand the risk. Because I think I, on the whole, bankroll management is not important because if you have an edge, you'll probably win. And if you don't, you won't. But I think when it comes to like trying to be the end boss, which is like kind of where I am right now, trying to ascend from, you know, low level sports betting to high level sports betting, it matters a lot because if you like, you can't bet too little because then you won't make enough. Like who knows if we'll have edge in five years, who knows how things will pan out? Who knows if I specifically will have edge in, in one year. So you have to bet a lot to take advantage, but also like you can lose and you will lose and you'll go through stretches where you like lose a lot of money. So if you're betting too much, like it's, it's just tricky. So figuring out exactly how much you should bet. And in some markets, it doesn't matter because the limit's so low that you're betting more than that anyway. And the line will move. So like, you know, if I'm betting a round matchup on the, on the European golf tour, like it doesn't really matter. I'm just betting the max on whatever I can get down. But on a college basketball side, you know, where you could easily get down 50 grand at um, post, if you're going to bet, you know, 8K or 12K or 18K, like it matters a lot which one you're choosing um, to maximize your EV, but also make sure you don't go broke. So yeah, I think just running Sims is important for that. But it, like, you have to believe in the frequencies because. Like frequencies are real. If something has a 3% chance of happening, it's going to happen 3% of the time. That might mean it happens to you, you know? Um, and it's, I think it's really hard to understand that unless you've gone through it because for the most part, people that run good in life, it's just hard to, yeah, it's just hard to think like something bad could happen. Yeah. So I totally agree with like one of the last things you said. It's like you have to experience it, right? So if you're living paycheck to paycheck and like, you know, you've got credit card debt, yeah, obviously don't sports bet. Like this is a super bad idea. It's super, there are easier ways to make money uh, and hopefully we'll get into some of those. But sports betting is super difficult. But that's not to say that there aren't really super valuable lessons to learn. And sports is really one of the better ways to learn uh, skill sets that really can translate to more complicated stuff, right? So sports has like, you know, very easy to understand game states. The data is like public. It's super easy. A lot of people are looking at it. A lot of people are cleaning the data. It's not that complicated. It's got a pretty static rule set. I mean, esports gets a little bit different because the rule set changes as they patch stuff. But modeling sports is like infinitely easier than say something like weather, right? So sure. You know, you can learn a whole bunch of things just modeling sports. You can learn the data side, the coding side, the math side. But just learning how to lose is such a valuable skill that I don't want to get all preachy and stuff. But, like, even in today's society, like, 
you know, not enough kids learn how to lose. Like it's such a valuable skill. For instance, if I hadn't learned how to just get absolutely annihilated sports betting and to understand like really bad stretches of, of variance, I would not have been able to withstand like the crypto bear market of like 2014, 15, right? And I would not have been in position to capitalize in 2016, 17. Like you have to, you know, you have to understand losing and like the, the emotional toll, the psychological toll, like just like how you react when under pressure. Like these are all skills and it's kind of something that, you know, you almost have to grow like um, like a tougher skin, you know, to really capitalize on on, you know, prediction markets. And if you don't ever bet, I don't know how you actually learn these skills like in, in today's society. Like it's every everybody's set up to you either win or, you know, you get a pat on the back at all times. You can't be critical of anyone. So I, I really think that if you have some disposable income, you want to do data modeling, you like sports, yeah, you should absolutely sports bet. Don't bet more than you can afford to lose, obviously. Um, don't overbet, you know, and if you don't have an edge, realize that you're, you know, Kelly says that you should be betting zero. But if you're trying to learn something, like, sure, you want to start simming out and back testing and things like that. That's fine. That's a skill set that you can absolutely learn before you start betting with real money. But there is something that you learn once real money and skin in the game is at, at stake that is just a different skill set that you learn. So I just I disagree that, you know, you should just blanket. Oh, don't bet because you're going to lose money. Yeah, you might lose money, but there is like an education cost. Like, I don't know if you like ever lost money trading options. Like, I don't know if like you guys were like, you know, naked options, iron condors or, or nothing but arbitrage. I don't know what you guys were doing. But if you like learn how to lose, I think it actually sets you up for not blowing your bankroll if you're actually too successful or, you know, you start off like super hot, right? Like, I just think that it's just, it's just, a, it's just a skill set that a lot of people don't learn nowadays. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. Um, it's just hard to detach yourself from, especially if you work hard on something, be it options trading or sports betting, it's like, oh yeah, I won. I'm good. And if you lost, it's like, oh, I'm getting unlucky. And it's hard to be not emotional and treat, try to handicap, you know, what percent chance of each happening happened you know was there a 20 percent chance i got lucky was there a you know 50 percent chance i got lucky because i mean a month like even a thousand bets there's a huge if you're a big winner in sports like a big big winner that can quantify their edge and potentially could crush it you know there's probably a probably a 10 percent chance or something you lose over the course of six months yeah exactly so realizing that that happened and then what you know once you're betting for four years it's like well now we're probably we're going to get to a point. <laughs> um, the frequencies are up a lot. So it's it's tricky. Like right now, it's the same thing you were saying earlier. Like I'll bet some college basketball game plus 10 and it'll go off seven and a half. And I'm like, should I take off some seven and a half, even though like I have fair seven and a half? Like I don't want to burn juice, but like I just lose every game. You know, you, if you look back at the results and it's like, oh, my CLV versus actual results, what, what you could have locked in, but then you don't want to bet stuff that's bad. It, it really fucks with you. Yeah. Absolutely. I totally agree. So I don't know. I just think it's a, I think losing is something that everybody should experience. If yeah. And in terms of like, should you sports bet or not? I mean, yeah, if you start sports betting, you're probably not going to win, but like, what's the point of life? You know, <laughs> like if you're just going to not do stuff that like is probably negative EV, like, you know, you, you could just live a little sports bet a little, you know, set aside a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, again, like if you're living paycheck to paycheck, obviously, you know, pay off your credit cards, don't pay interest, stuff like that. 
before you do anything like sports bet. You know, if yes, it, it does come up with people that like sometimes I'll be talking with someone or you know a friend of my wife or a friend of a friend. They'll be like, oh, so you know, I heard you do some sports betting. And like, that's all you do or like, that's what you're doing. Oh, wow. Interesting. Maybe I should get into it. You know, I was, I was listening to this show and the guy was saying, you know, bet the first period hockey over and it was doing really well for a while. And I'm like, yeah, just please don't like, I don't want you. (laughs) So it's, it's hard when you meet people sometimes they're like, oh, you're a regular guy. Like you're doing it. Right. It's like, no, please do not do it. So as long as you know, you're going to lose and put a, put a little bit of money into it, it's fine. But, you know, I've got, like, random people like, oh, yeah, you know, I, you know, I just made, you know, $5,000 bonus at work last year. I'm thinking about putting that all into a sports betting account. Sound like a good idea? That stuff is not a good idea. Yeah, exactly. By the way, I just got super bad flashbacks because for an entire year on VEASAN, during hockey season, they were betting the uh, Tampa Bay first period overs basically blindly, right. basically blindly for, like, a month. Yeah. I mean, at my grandmother's wake, <laughs> a friend of my uncle came up to me and told me, he's like, oh, I heard you're doing some sports betting. Oh, I listened to this Vizen show, oh, um, no. and they've been crushing the first period overs. Oh, I think God. Dave Tooley was tweeting a lot about yep, that, too. Was. I was like, like, I try to explain to people, there are people out there smarter than you mm-hmm. spending 100 hours a week looking at these numbers. If the number ever goes to something they think has edge, they bet it. If you're looking at it, you have no chance, none, no chance at all. Hard for people to know that until you actually know how sports betting works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, we probably got to get moving on this this uh, this outline. We're 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 like an hour and a half in already. We're like nowhere near done. Nice, hell yeah. I mean, I think in terms of length, the viewership, which is small, probably will not care and might even prefer long. I've got nothing to do. If you've got if you've got stuff to do, feel free to speed it up. But otherwise, we can kind of keep it as is. No, I got, I got nothing to do. All right. So how I started sports betting. I love these stories, like I was saying before. Right. My story is so different than everybody else's. It's kind of crazy. So I was saying my family's like old school Irish, right? So I, I had a job when I was 11. Like, God forbid, you know, kids work nowadays. But at age 14, I went to go work for this like Italian catering place. And, you know, Seville jokes, right? Your locals, we call them Vinnies, right? It just so okay. happens. It just so, so happens. That's what that means. Just a local. Yeah, it's just a local. So it just. And why is it called Vinny? Is, uh, it, because, is it because it rhymes with Penny? Or? No, I think it's just an Italian Goomba name or whatever. Okay. It just so happens I work for a Vinny Senior and a Vinny Junior. They have this money guy who comes in, which, by the way, you had this like white Mercedes SLR that was just sick. So when I was 14, I was like, oh, this is the coolest guy ever. They literally called him Mo Green. I swear to God. So, and obviously everybody can tell from my terrible accent, I'm from New York. So they have this catering business and. You know, they realize at age 14, like, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm working pretty hard for them. So, and it's funny. They gave me the nickname Robbie the Horse. So, they build this, like, section, like, this addition to the, to the business. Like, this side, like, window where, like, walk-up customers could come up to. And I never understood why they did it. I was like, wow, that's, like, a huge expense. Like, I don't really see that many orders coming in from, from that window. Yeah, they were basically running numbers out the window. They've got this booking operation or whatever. But by age 15, I'm like now running the entire store basically by myself at night. You know, even though you're not supposed to be able to like sell alcohol or whatever and stuff like that. But they realize I'm good at math. So they give me this like ledger and they're like, yeah, can you just reconcile this for us? So I'm like, yeah, sure. No problem. And it's just numbers to me. I don't know what it is. It's kind of like in a code, but not really. Um, No, no names or anything. Just like numbers. 
and I'm reconciling what ends up being their book. And that's basically my first exposure to sports betting. It's not by not until age 16 that I even understand what I'm doing. So literally my first experience is back of house, right? It's, it's the other side of the counter, which I never really hear those stories. So I always find it kind of curious that that was my, um, my initial exposure. Then I go to college and I don't even watch sports. In fact, like this is like a true fact. I've never seen the Giants bill Super Bowl, but I was punished. I wasn't, wasn't allowed to watch TV. So like, I just, I just never even watched sports really. I go to college. College is super busy for me, you know, so I don't really have time to watch TV or whatever. You know, I start working and then I start working for a cable company. It's a pretty big company. It's the same guy who owns like the Nixon stuff, uh, James Dolan Cablevision. You know, there's tons of TVs on all over the time, all over the place while I'm working. And, you know, the guys would do like bet between themselves or whatever. And like, I would watch the games and I'm like, wow, I'm smarter than all these guys. Like I could probably make money doing this. And this is classic mistake number one. You thinking that you're smarter than the market, right? That's basically how I get involved in actual betting of sports is I want to prove to myself that I'm smarter than everybody else, which I which I quickly find out is not the case. <laughs> like any person in this time of the this time of the history, I'm betting offshores, right? I think actually at the time it was still sportsbook.com. I don't know when it went to .ag or whatever, but um, I think it was still like sportsbook.com is like the first site I signed up for. And the worst thing happens to me. I start off super hot. Most people will be like, oh, that's great. You won right away. Like you build up your bankroll right away. That's awesome. I think this is like the worst way. Like if you don't understand like bankroll management and variance and stuff like that, starting off super hot is like probably the worst way to start your betting career because you build all these just terrible habits. Like you just don't think you could lose. You think it's free money. It's just, it's awful. Everything is going swimmingly. And then somebody told this same exact story on a Bullock podcast. One of the Chicago guys, George Mason, UConn, final four game. They bet the money line um, on UConn right there with you, buddy. And I blow out the entire account. I had worked it up from like a couple hundred bucks to like, I don't know, 10 grand or whatever, or 11 grand. And I blow out like 95% of it, like just like a, like a, like a donkey. That was a Elite Eight game or a Final Four game? I think it was a Final Four game, wasn't it? I don't remember. Um, oh wait, no, 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 Mason, no, no. What was? It was Elite Eight. It was Elite Eight. I think. I think it was Elite Eight. What yeah. was UConn? I mean, I was not even kind of close was, to betting that. What was the deal with that? Like, like UConn a, minus twelve, minus a thousand or something? It was. A, it was minus a thousand, I think. And I'm just thinking, oh, I'll bet like ten grand or whatever, and I'll win a free grand or whatever. Like just, yeah, you know, sure. just, just just stupid stuff that you do when you just have like no idea what's going on. Right. Uh, and you and I blow out the account. So at that point, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna restructure all of this and i'm going to make sure that i don't do this again because this sucks i just wasted two and a half years building up this account or whatever and then i start taking it a lot more seriously um ken palm comes around and ken palm is the the light bulb moment for me when i'm like ah this is how you do things it's right right around this time that ken palm shows up that i find grooving on i think it was like las vegas advisors or whatever whatever okay. wh- whatever website it was um and i start reading Post by him and other people. And I start to realize, oh, this is how it works. It's not just bet teams to win and win money. Like, you actually have to, you know, do stuff. So that's basically how I get started. And then it's not until... So, like, for you, like you were saying, you built a model, like, 2018. I think I'm 2011. I finally get 
you know, database working. I get all the data. I'm starting to clean the data myself. Modeling back then. Like, that's the other thing, too. Like, sports betting is so easy to bootstrap right now. Like, you have so many R packages, right? You have all these quant libraries. Python is, like, super flexible nowadays. You could use, what is it, Quantopia or whatever, which is, like, that financial library of, like, uh, financial modeling, like, all this stuff is like already prepackaged and built in. So bootstrapping yourself is super easy. But back in like 2011, I'm coding basically all of this by hand. Um, and, I'm right. reading, and I'm reading financial textbooks on how to make models. And none of them were good. Let's, like, let's, not, uh, let's not pretend. It was just all bad. Sure. Um, you know, so that's, that's basically how I start betting. And then this podcast would have been a lot more interesting, I think, if we did it in 2016. Because from 2011 to 2016... I'm pretty invested in things, but by 2016, I have I have other interests that make you know far more money. Um, and what were you betting from, let's say, 2011 to 2016? What were your primary things you were betting? Nothing but college basketball. Okay. Yeah, Ken Palm showed me the way basically, and then base I was doing a lot of you know mispriced underdogs, um, a lot of the smaller conference stuff, and then like mean reversion plays in the second half. Right, the concept of like three point variance wasn't really so much a thing because of the volumes were so much lower in in 2011, but as those volumes start to pick up you start to understand the variance a little bit more. So just mean reversion plays in the second half where we're pretty profitable for a long time. How did the market work? Let's say back in 2014 in college basketball, because I know very well how it works today, but I have no idea. 2014, was it like the same? Were you betting overnight in the morning, in the afternoon, right? A tip, what were like the sort of limits you could get down at each time? How much like were lines moving? Were lines opening really wrong and then getting corrected overnight? Were they getting corrected in the morning? I'd say right now for college basketball, you know, the lines open and then there's the small people who kind of take out the obvious errors. And then by the next morning, uh, when bookmaker goes to bigger limits, stuff is, you know, mostly good. Some stuff's off. And then by the time you get to tip, it's like stuff is pretty fair. Would yeah. you say that's how it went back then, or uh, basic, was it different at all? Basically the same, but less efficient and less and um, a lot slower. So you would see some overnight stuff move, but there would still be lines that were like way off by morning. And I think that was because people weren't banging into openers as aggressively. Okay, it does seem like recently. I don't really want to get into the conversation of betting openers. I like like one day, like I I, I just did the math quickly. If you're a college football better and you bet every single side of, of an opener and you hit like 55%, I think you clear like $37,000 if you bet just on bet online. Like is it even worth right. it? Like like what are we what are we doing here? It's like just not worth it. Well, I, I think when you just said that, you might have convinced like 10 different people to try it. Like oh. I get yeah, 37,000 is not a lot, but if there's someone sitting there and he's like making 50k at his job, He's like, wait, I could just do this in college basketball. Um, yeah, I, I don't really have issue with people betting openers. Like, it's just going to happen. I feel like everyone's been there or at least kind of understood it if you haven't been there. What I think, what drives me crazy is when stuff is posted everywhere <laughs> and someone bets on Pinnacle, which most books are copying off of. And Pinnacle has a lower limit than like some college bookie that I can get you an account with. So like instead of betting $250 on Pinnacle, here, I can get you a bookie market account. The guy takes $400. You know, it's who are the people betting the loudest sites for the smallest limits? That shit drives me crazy. 
it's fine if you're doing it the wrong way, but when you're doing it the right way, it's like, what it, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, I, and I, I don't know why people do that other than convenience and or they run into the problem that I ran into, which is... So, as Norm Gambles once uh, very accurately joked, um, nobody's um, intimidated by my large calves and sunken chest. So, uh, like, I had, a, <laughs> I had a whole bunch of, like, non-payment issues. I had one person, you know, that I was working with you know, basically abscond with a whole bunch of money that I had to go visit. You know, I've had problems getting paid. You know, sometimes I feel like people mitigate that risk by using the path of least resistance. But I mean, you're 100% right. Like, if you're actually going to be doing this to make money, like, you got to put in at least a little effort and eat, and eat some of the risk for the for the higher reward, right? So I hate when people bet into to openers. I know I know plenty of people who do it and they think that they're super sharp and it's it's quite infuriating because it's if you have an edge and I get it like if you don't do it somebody else is going to do it I get that I don't know like are you trying to make a lot of money at this or are you trying to like shape the market and ruin it for everybody I don't know it's it's I don't want to get into it it's uh yeah it's frustrating then let's then let's move on yeah <laughs> the next topic I had is like how I do sports betting now so I've said multiple times I work alone other than I do have they started out as high school kids. It was a kid who used to watch my house for me and house it. They're now in college, but they chart football for me, pro. So those are the only people I work with. I get all my own accounts. I do all my own coding. I do all my own data scraping, data scrubbing, modeling, betting. So I literally work alone. Even though I'm on the SIBO list, I'm not really friends with anybody other than, you know, one or two people that I talk to every so often. I've never met anybody in person. You know, so like I'm basically by myself and this is a limitation right like if you're doing this by yourself you have to recognize like you will never get to the highest level like you will never be where you're trying to go right like you were saying before like you're trying to get to the top of the mountain like you have like part of the skill set is that you have to be good in the social aspect like you have to have connections you've got to network you've got to do all these other things I'm just not. I'm just. I'm just not willing to do those things. I just. I'm just not. I think a lot of. I think a lot of the Seville people pretend that they're misanthropes and they act like they're misanthropes online, but in real life they actually like people and they're social and they hang out. I, I actually hate people. Like I much. <laughs> I much prefer dealing with animals. Like every single experience I've had in the sports betting world with a person physically in real life has gone terrible. It just really has. It just has gone terrible. And I don't know if that's just because I'm difficult to deal with. And, like, I'm super type A, obviously. People always let you down. So I've just decided I'm just going to work alone and I'll I'll extract whatever alpha I can out of the, out of the system and whatever value I can. And it is what it is. I, I already have, you know, I'm lucky enough I've, I don't have to really worry about money. You know, so at this point, it's just proving that, like, I can still beat prediction markets, right? Like, it's more of a pride thing than, a, than it is a money thing at this point. Um, so if you're working alone, what percentage of your outs are deposit versus credit? Are you, like, all the accounts you have are, you know, you deposited some amount of money and that's in your account? Or is it, like, a traditional so, so you know, paperhead bookie? Yeah, so this, this is how crazy I am. Um, even the credit bookies, I'll usually give them money up front um because i'm super paranoid about the pitfalls okay. i'm like super paranoid about the pitfalls of gambling so i tell them not to give me give me credit i just i'm always afraid that again it's how i grew up and it doesn't really make sense and it's again it's enumerate like you obviously want to use credit um credit is using other people's money 
is a much better way of making a lot of money. But there is also a human aspect to this too, right? Like I just want to make sure that I never get myself into any trouble. I don't want to owe anybody any money. I don't. Yeah. Want, I, I don't want. I don't want any trouble. I don't want to be late. Like you told the story one day. I, th- I don't know if it was with Joey Isaacs. Like if you lose, they expect the money. Like five minutes after the event is over right? and and, and, and if you win, it's like, yeah, three weeks later. Yeah. I'll get to you when I get to you. You know, right. I just don't want to be in that position. It's not worth it to me. Right. Like I have too much to lose. Sports betting is not this end all be all for me in terms of, you know, what I, the money I live on. So, um, yeah, like even the credit outs that I do have, I don't ever even really use the credit, but I mean, I do have credit outs, obviously, like you you can't do this without credit outs. The big thing I use though, is I do a lot of crossing or OTC, whichever term you want to use. Sure. Luckily in New York, there's a lot of people with a lot of disposable income. There's a lot of really dumb people here that just want action. And I'm really good. So how does that work? Let's say like we've got a uh we've got an nba game heat are playing the clippers you know line six and a half you like the heat how do you how does that happen where it's, you it's al- would well it's almost cross al- it with someone well it's almost always football so like basketball is like nba okay well, let's say football then it's the chiefs and the 49ers and the chiefs are a one point favorite yeah just like a group text I have okay. a whole bunch of group texts and people will be like oh i like this side and if i want the other side gotcha. I'll, I'll grab it so this is another thing right like so if you're doing a lot of crossing or OTC stuff, you really want to be super careful about the deals you structure, right? A lot of the deals that I see, like people will set lines for every single game in a week and whichever they differ on, that's what they'll cross on. I try to avoid those types of agreements pretty aggressively. If somebody wants that type of agreement, I'll I'll usually pass. I want to kind of try to cherry pick sides that I feel pretty strongly about versus other people. So I try not to get myself tied down into, you know, oh, I have... You know, I've got to pick, I've got to make prices on 17 sides and I'm forced to write action against this person, you know, for all these sides for the entire year. Because like I was saying before with like, you know, whales, you don't know who's getting info from what, you don't know who's actually giving this person the sides or whatever. So I like to cherry pick more so. And you'd be surprised. Like, it doesn't seem like it would be that liquid. It gets kind of liquid. Yeah, you get, I believe it. You get enough people. And then the way that you can transfer wealth around these days is pretty easy with um, with crypto. It's, you know, as long as you don't have to worry about cashing out right away, it's, it's pretty easy to get a lot of liquidity. So and how it, do you meet the people in the group text? Like, who are these people? Yeah. You said you hate people, but now you've got all these people willing to bet high-stakes sports with you? Yeah, yeah. So, ba- so it all comes from having like a tiny group of friends. So I have two friends uh, and they're really good guys. And then they introduce you to a bunch of people. And then those people have introduced you. And I don't actually ever hang out. I don't ever actually hang out with these people. I don't go out with them. But they have my phone number and I'm on this group text and I like to talk sports. And I just try to stay in touch with those people. And then those people realize, oh, if they want to bet and they don't want to pay, you know, the 110 or the 105 or whatever. Oh, I could just go, you know, you know, cross with Rob and, you know, things are good. So that's kind of one of the bigger ways that I get around a lot of these problems. And then obviously these people don't pay right away, but that's okay because these are people that I, you know, I don't have to worry about them showing up at my house with a baseball bat, right? Like if they don't pay, sure. if they don't pay, they don't pay. And then I have no problems paying if I lose. So it's like a lot lower stress. It's like I'm not dealing with, you know, the wannabe mobsters, you know, in, you know, Staten Island or Brooklyn or Long Island or whatever. So 
Right. Um, I much I much prefer that type of setup. Nice. Um, um, one of the questions that somebody asked me was JBXX, who, by the way, JBXX is another guy who's super sharp. He probably knows the NFL rule set better than some of the referees. Um, okay. Yeah, and you you would you laugh, but like little things like that though, I think are super valuable when it comes to edge cases and especially like data scrubbing and stuff. I've actually had to go back and change some of the things in my database because he actually corrected the football zebra account on stuff. So it's a super smart guy. Um, he asked me like go to editor language, easiest recurring hassle I automated. So I have a hobby that takes up a lot of time where I'm not at the computer. So I basically automate pretty much everything. Like every all my data scraping automated the data scrubbing. A lot of it is automated. I, I will get alerts and most alerts will just log to um, like a dashboard that I have locally on a web server here. But some alerts will get like serious enough that it'll email me. Then I'll, I'll go back to the computer to go check. The scraping of lines is automated. Even some of the betting is automated. There's some stuff like mean, I was talking about mean reversion plays, you know, a lot of the second half stuff, especially in college and NBA. A lot of that stuff is automated. And we, we could talk about some, <laughs> some real doozies. I gave back an entire year's worth of NBA profits because the scoreboard for three different data feeds were stuck. Um, so even though I had redundancy in the data feeds that I was um, scraping in, the score was stuck on all of them. And I didn't have like a, a temporal check to say, oh, if this score has been stuck for over five minutes, something's probably really screwed up. Stop betting this. And it kept live betting the... Uh, the Miami Heat against the Brooklyn Nets. And I basically donkeyed off the entire account, rebetting live the Heat, thinking I had this gigantic edge against the line, and the, the Nets ended up winning. So basically an entire year's NBA profit gone in, in one one automation accident. And there's I've had plenty of those. They, they happen, but, you know, that's all in the game. Right. Um, so go to editor language. Um, I use everything, basically, to keep myself sharp. So obviously Python... Uh, both two and three, obviously mostly three now since two is basically deprecated. I do a lot of C sharp stuff, some Rust. Go to editor. Obviously for C C sharp, it's going to be just be Visual uh, Studio and Visual Code. Jupyter Notebooks for Python. I mean, Jupyter Notebooks is awesome. I was going through some some other stuff today, and it's crazy how far things have come. And the easiest recurring hassle I've automated. The easiest recurring hassle. I mean, the easiest is obviously the data scraping. All those like libraries like Scrapey for Python are like, I mean, they're so powerful now. So much stuff has changed. Even like two years ago, like everything is just so, so much easier. The hardest recurring hassle I've automated is definitely live betting. Live betting and automating live betting is super hard. I always laugh. Spanky always calls himself a technology company. Meanwhile, he's pissing in a bottle at his computer screen, which, by the way, I don't, I don't have to piss in a bottle, Spanky. You want to talk about, te- <laughs> you want to talk about a technology company? Like I can, <laughs> I can show you how to actually automate stuff. It's bang it, bang, Spanky. Yeah, it's it's yeah. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. He talks about himself as a technology company. I mean, it's it's absurd. He's a ridiculous man. I mean, yeah, sure. I'm sure they have some bots and stuff, but like, I've never had to piss in a Gatorade bottle. And brag about it on Twitter. That's absurd. Yeah, but if you had children, you probably wouldn't be bragging about missing their eighth birthday either. And that's kind of where he eats. He, so. Such a such. I, mean, <laughs> I hate when people brag like that because there's just no need to brag like that. All I hear when you brag like that is someone who's just not good at what they do. Like it's just right. Like I'm sure he's profitable and he he's found a living, right? Like you know, 
scalping out accounts and arbitrage sure. and all that stuff. Like he's he's found his way. Like all the respect to the hustle. Like I don't I'm not willing to do that hustle. So all the respect to him. But please don't tell me that you're a technology company because you're not. Like it's just yeah. it's, 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 it's just fraudulent. So yeah, so I use a whole bunch of different languages basically just to keep myself sharp because you know obviously I still have a real time job and I like to keep I like to keep I don't like to do the vanity exercise like Chris Long does where it's like I'm gonna program in 140 different languages a blackjack a blackjack program like that's ridiculous you don't actually learn anything doing that um, is that um, Oct Onion yeah Oction or whatever <laughs> um, I was asking some people the other day what that guy's deal with is what that guy's deal is because I've noticed a few people on Seville have either trolled him or earnestly interacted with him. And I'd never encountered him before, so I was kind of confused what his whole deal was. He is a god-tier math mind. God-tier. Probably one of the smartest math minds on Twitter, but just lost in every other aspect of, of life. You know, I mean, I've had... It's... He's... He is brilliant. He is really good at what he does. He's very respected in the um, by certain analytics people. He's even respected by some GMs in many, many sports. He's worked for many, many sports. But like he'll do hypocritical things like say, oh, you know, you should not pay. You should not um, have any interns work for you and not pay them. And then tweet out like three days later, oh, um, if you want someone to work on analytics for your sports team, I'll work for free. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, like that's a thing that happened. And I love the I love the guy. The guy is brilliant. He is way better at math than I could ever pretend to be. But at the same time, it's just and, and he's very good at modeling. I mean, he's he's excellent. But he doesn't seem to bet his stuff. And I don't know if that's because he wants to still be able to work for pro teams and or does work for pro teams and or is already current work, currently working for pro teams. Like I know he's had some relationship with the Padres for a while. It seems like he may be doing work on and off of the Rockets. He's worked for the Tigers, I believe. So a brilliant guy, brilliant guy, awesome at code, awesome at modeling. But like, you know, it's just, it's kind of a weird guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we had a fight one time about powerlifting versus ultra running and he, like he just couldn't be more wrong. And like talking to him it's just it's it's almost it's almost as bad as talking to Seth sometimes about uh when, when, when you disagree on stuff when it's just like you get like these nonsense responses back that are just like not they're non-responsive like they just change the topic move the goalposts it's just it's it's awful but the guy's brilliant he's brilliant for my house obviously i have like multiple redundant isps coming into the house sand nas device 110 terabytes plus of storage most of that storage is like video slicing so the kids that i have that i pay they um they will slice up video for me so that i can search certain events and it's not for nfl nfl's got game pass so that's pretty easy but like if you know anything about like the dark market for all 22 college film like you can read articles about it it's very difficult to get some all 22 tape for some colleges, but I try to store as much as I can. So that's what most of the storage goes to. Main computer is just a Zen-based virtualization OS. I don't know if any, nobody will know it, but I have also a Windows-based uh, machine learning rig and a Linux one. Basically, the one good thing about crypto is like when crypto went to the bear market in 2018, people were selling off GPU mining rigs, like six GPUs and you know, in a rig for like 30, 40 cents on the dollar. And I picked up a couple of those. So those were pretty good buys. And obviously what I have at home is overkill, but this is what I do for a living, right? So if you don't want to have all that infrastructure at your house, you can do all this in the 
Amazon AWS. You can spin up an instance, piece of cake. I think GPU for machine learning instances, like they'll charge you like 90 cents an hour. So just remember to shut them off when you're not using them. So you can get a lot done. And then on the database side, you know, Postgres, MySQL, SQL Server, a little bit of Mongo. Oh, for IDEs, RStudio, obviously. I mean, that's that's a no-brainer. Use a lot of R. And then obviously for, you know, scraping. I said scraping before. For Ruby, you could do like Nokogiri or Water with an I. WebSocket APIs, async IO, WebSockets libraries. And, you know, like I said before, you're scraping odds. Uh, specific data, not live data, scraping live events, Twitter feeds. Uh, scraping Twitter feeds is actually another way I burned a whole bunch of money. I wasn't, so someone, I was only monitoring one feed for injuries in a game, which was a mistake. They missed an injury, so I thought LeBron James was still playing, and he wasn't. I ended up burning a lot of money that way, too. So obviously, mo multiple data sources for live injuries, good idea. And then obviously, you know, just take multiple sources, Check it, clean it, um, alert on inconsistency, stuff like that. And then from the betting side, some like Pinnacle was nice when the API was way more open. I've actually had my my API account closed at one point. I've since found a way back. I wish more betting shops would have secured endpoints where you could do uh, automated betting. Not a lot of them do, so you have to do a lot of like HTTP you know, HTTP post stuff, you know, and then there's like some stuff that you have to actually do like browser posting. Some things you can get done through like, like a, a local proxy, like Fiddler or whatever. You can, you can send commands through that and stuff. I guess I was actually was going to ask you a question. So you're not like as much of like a programmer as me. So like what type of, how do you like manage like all your data? Like, are you using like mostly R? Like what are you using for, for modeling? Um, what I was saying was I use mostly Python. Um, there's a lot of really easy things in there to just, you know, a few lines of code. You can do a lot of stuff. Um, I store a lot of stuff just like in Excel files or CSV files. Um, some stuff I have like a small database in Mongo. And then I have a few scripts that run in R, mainly because the stuff that they're getting, there's some R package for that makes it easier to do it in R or whatever. Yep. Um, so as of like maybe two or three years ago, I knew nothing. Um, you know, I wouldn't even be able to install something on my computer. And now I'm not good. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm able to like get some stuff done. Okay. Yeah. I mean, basically same, same concept. Like some stuff in R, like people always talk about Python versus R. Like if anybody's not into programming and thinking about it and listening to this, just use the best tool for the job. There's so many packages in R nowadays that can bootstrap you so freaking fast. Um, like NFL Scraper without the E, CFB Scraper um, for college football. It's basically the same thing as the NFL package. Um, all that stuff is great. You know, that, that, that stuff can just get you going super fast. I will say that R is a lot slower, memory intensive. When you get to the higher level of doing this, you will need to learn Python for sure. And you're probably gonna have to learn some other stuff, but you know, R can definitely get you get you going right out of the gate. Escute tweeted, sports you tried betting and no longer do, reason? Oh God, this is a good one. Biggest sports setback hurdle, if even applicable, any new sports in the works, or is that called crypto? So what sports do I bet? NFL, college football, college basketball, those are my best sports. That's basically bread and butter. NFL was was really good this year. Actually, in fact, this was actually my best year ever. College basketball is going pretty well. Uh, college football is always kind of just it, it is what it is. Esports, specifically League of Legends, used to be my largest edge, and I I've told this story a few times to 
friends, but I'll tell this one live. I don't know if anybody actually knows this. Hopefully nobody will get in trouble. In China, they had this thing called the LPL. I forget what it stood for, but it was like the Chinese League of Legends stream. But the people who actually casted the LPL originally, there was no English stream at first. So what they did is they got these guys from Australia to cast the LPL. Well, they were actually casting from replays or like, I guess they were like in game, but like 20 minutes behind or whatever. But the actual betting lines didn't know that. So we actually found somebody who was in the studio in China who could actually tell us who was actually winning at like the 15 minute mark or whatever. And we were actually betting Chinese League of Legends basically ahead of the broadcast by about 20 minutes. So that was pretty, that was pretty awesome. That was a... Sounds pretty good. That was a really So where do you, where are you betting League of Legends? Uh, League of Legends is hard, right? Like, so the markets are like super, super Seems small. really hard. Yeah. So like, you know, Pinnacle's got some... Nitro was good for a little bit. Nitro's not that good anymore. There were some e-betting sites, um, I'm sorry, esports betting sites specifically that were kind of okay, but those were more for CSGO, like skin betting, which by the way, betting against like 13-year-olds, like there's no easier money in the world. Um, <laughs> however, my League of Legends edge is basically all gone because what they did is they introduced a whole bunch of RNG, um, you know, uh, random num- number generation specifically around some of the objectives um there's just like this like big dragon or drake thing that you could kill it used to be like a super static event where like you got this specific reward for killing this thing but what they did is they changed it to like four different types of drakes and each one boosts your stats in a different way and it just so happens with rng like if you have a team that relies on mobility if you get this thing called the air drake that increases your speed like your team is just going to be so much stronger than expected versus if you get one of the other three, right? But if you if you do have a team based on speed and an Eldrick never shows up, and you're going against a team that basically can output a ton of damage, and you get like all these fire drakes that come out, like now that team is like way stronger, almost ridiculously too strong, and that's how it was after like season six, I think, or so or five. Now it's even worse. Like the first three drakes don't mean that much, but if you get the fourth one, it's like basically game breaking. So there's just like so much RNG now, and like a lot of variants that a lot of the the pre match stuff is is pretty useless. And there's basically no live betting, right? Like there's no live betting esports other than Dota two when they have the um, the TI Classic, where which by the way, Penny was Penny at one point had like fifty thousand dollar limits, which was insane. Oh really? Yeah, it was it was absurd. Um, some this of the, is like the world championship of yeah, of whatever Dota, you're talking about. Uh, yeah, of Dota two. Um, okay. The live lines. Um, I think I was able to get eight thousand dollars down once. It was crazy. Damn. Um, yeah, this is, but it only happens once a year, though, right? It's only for this one specific. Oh, okay. You know, one specific tournament. You can't replicate that edge over and over again. It's. So it's like, do you really bet this much if you can't really replicate it? You know, it's it's hard to. I mean, obviously, we we were pushing all in because we thought we had a pretty big edge. But you know, it's it's a question. Like, you know, if you can't replicate this, you know, should you be betting that much? And then I've, obviously, like I was saying, I, was, I bet some tennis, some volleyball, um, and I do bet some NBA, but it's almost always second half NBA, and I it's really all like mean reversion type stuff. It's not really a lot of pre-game or pre-tip stuff i find those markets to be like ridiculously efficient once tanking season starts 
I'll bet a little bit more, but I won't bet until, I don't know if this is giving away edge. I think pretty much everybody who listens to this would know. Coach substitution patterns and then like five, four, and three man on and off um, rotations, especially in the fourth quarter once tanking season starts. I think there's a pretty good edge there. You can tell who's trying to win and who's not trying to win. Obviously, the players themselves are trying to win. I don't want to sound like conspiracy Seth here, um, but obviously, <laughs> obviously, there are some coaching decisions that are very obvious that this coach is not actually trying to put his best team on the court. And anybody who's modeled NBA, obviously, you're not doing it from a, a team-based approach. You're obviously doing it from a, a bottom-up type approach, player-driven projection model. If you know that a certain coach is going to have a tendency to not put his best lineup out in certain spots, I do think that there's some value in, in some mean reversion stuff if that team is, is winning uh, and they don't want to actually win. What have I lost edges in? I will no longer bet baseball as long as I live. I had an edge maybe for a little bit. The guys who do it for a living, like, you know, the Spragers of the world. Uh, Necessary Paper, I guess, is another big baseball better. I apologize if I'm forgetting anybody else who posts a lot of baseball. More power to you. Basically, my edge completely disappeared once everybody started incorporating catcher framing. And that was that was the end for me. I mean, I'm basically a coin flipper at this point. And then hockey. Do you bet any hockey? I don't. You want to talk about a crazy fucking market? Talk to anybody who bet hockey this year for the first month and people steaming shit the first month of hockey. I have no idea what was going on. So one of the things that I do since I work alone is I take all the line history and I kind of perform like a metadata analysis since I don't actually know that many people in syndicates or whatever. I try to figure out who's betting what basically basically based on what I think certain groups. So first I try to identify certain groups by like temporal analysis and, and, and betting patterns, like which lines are moving first. Basically, I stole this idea from, you know, when the government was caught stealing people's phone data. And even though the names weren't there, they were basically using... A metadata approach to figure out and group uh, certain individuals and like actually what they were doing. I kind of took a similar approach to try to figure out like what syndicates were doing. There is some syndicate or some group or whatever who just absolutely, I don't know what they were doing with hockey for the f- first two two weeks, three weeks, month. I, I don't, I still don't understand what they were doing. I'm pretty sure they're broke. Numbers were moving in ways I didn't expect. So if, if if anybody's listening to this and they can explain to me what was happening in the hockey market at the beginning of this year, I'd, I'd love to know because it was insane. Um, you mean like some side would move from like oh yeah minus people, 120 to minus 170 or yeah, something? Yeah, well, not like that that drastically, but people were steaming shit like really hard in, in ways that I thought would have been like the dummy way. Like I thought people were going to be dummying the line a certain way and then it would come back the other way. And it was they were really betting – like they weren't ever coming back the other other way. Like I don't, I just don't hmm. understand what they were doing. Um, and tracking that for like the first couple of weeks, like they were getting crushed. So I, I don't, I don't know. Somebody, I don't know. Somebody told me that it was like the Berry Horse Group or something. They was trying to bet hockey and that they were getting crushed. Mm. But I don't, I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a troll or something. Yeah, I think that's like the boogeyman now. Anybody, anybody who sees steam that that's going broke, they think it's Berry Horse. <laughs> yeah. um michael lickman who i know recently got blocked and unfollowed by a couple of civil people so I, I i hesitate to even read this tweet 
But this kind of is my approach now. Uh, for the record, he, he tweets out, for the record, you don't have to predict sports outcomes better than the Vegas Lions to beat them or crush them. You just have to have some different method that allows you to model some games better. And then as long as you exploit those biases that they have in their lines, you'll be able to make money. That's kind of my approach, right? Like, I don't think my models are very good. I do think that I found a certain subset of results in my models that do perform better than, you know, the regressed results. And that's basically how I bet now, right? So I don't think I'm a good modeler. Uh, in fact, I would classify myself as probably a below average modeler. I'm still learning, you know, but I do think that I found like this like little subset of, of opportunities that I've been able to capitalize on. Like I'll give a perfect example. Um, I bet NFL props. I bet a lot of them. And obviously, you know, most sharps will bet a lot of unders and, my unders actually outperform my edge, so I actually should probably be betting a little bit more than I do. But, you know, obviously betting props gets you banned, so that's problematic. My overs, like if, if my model says I have a 2% edge on this over, on whatever the fair market line is, those overs underperform my market edge. And I don't know, I don't understand why my model, for whatever reason, the whenever it predicts an over, like it's just, it performs worse than the market. But the unders, when it says it has an edge, produce, you know, performs better than the market. You would think that it would regress kind of, you know, similarly on both sides. But for whatever reason, whatever I'm doing is broken. So that's like a perfect example of how I know my model is bad. Um, but I found like a subset of stuff. So I just, I just know like if I see an over from my model, I probably shouldn't be betting it. I don't know if you've ever had a weird modeling issue like that, but uh, I don't. I don't, um, I don't know if it's like a colon. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's like a collinearity problem that I have, but there's something wrong. Yeah, there's been times where just like everything's high or everything's low, and so you just kind of adjust the whole board down. Um, especially like at the beginning of this year for college basketball totals, because there were a lot of rule changes. Um, you know, you might be like a point too high on everything, or two points too low, or something. Yeah, but like if you had like like if your model spit out like you know fair line is one thirty eight and the total is one forty one, like my unders would perform great. But like let's say the fair line was one forty one and my model would predict one forty four, those overs that my model is spitting yeah. out would underperform. <laughs> and like I don't understand why that why that's the case. I, I'm assuming it's a like I said like a collinearity problem with with how I'm treating certain inputs but yeah I'll be damned it's a it's a problem that's a little bit too advanced for me um <laughs> so but yeah, that's tough yeah I, you know I know you're not supposed to admit when you're not perfect at stuff online or on Twitter but like that's the truth of the matter like there's some issue that I, I still can't fig figure out yeah the player props are crazy because <laughs> like if you just like bet under and all of them you just win and like people have known that for years and it still is they just never go over it's crazy yeah yeah other infrastructure stuff i wanted to talk about let me see oh so if we had done this podcast like a couple years ago this might have been fun i actually tried to build a machine learning model from the old 22 tape on game pass basically doing like two neural nets right like one classification model one regression model with the classification set being like um play diagrams and then you know regressing you know against the the actual visual trying to match it up against the, the data set and seeing if I could spit out some type of automated analysis of the old 22 tape. I wasted like eight months trying to do that. I never got it. I never got anywhere. The video wasn't clean enough. I couldn't really read the. You mean the way that they're aligned before the snap or like, yeah, the, you yeah. take the snap 
all that happens and try to figure out what play it was. Well, first I wanted to do just the snap, like let's baby steps, right? And I just could never get it. I just never could get it to work. Um, so I'd be interested to hear. Gotcha. If, I just I'd be interested if anybody's listening to this if they ever got it to work and how they did it. Now that that edge is basically gone, because now everybody's going to have the next gen stats with the GPS dots and stuff, right? Which by the way is awesome. If you don't know, it was a big deal on football Twitter the other day, but there is a package uh the github repo from arrowhead analytics called uh, next gen scrapey 2.0 um basically it's a, a library to take the next gen uh stats route data and visualize it and it's awesome like you really did a lot of work on it i do think that there's some edge there probably with things like separation um the grading of cornerbacks grading of uh, wide receivers some stuff that pff is like not that great at um, so like PFF will get you 85% of the way there, I think. Like they're not totally terrible, but it's like that last 15% that, you know, that's why they don't win using their picks and their grades. There's like that last 15% where they clearly have some issue with either their graders being biased or their level one reviewers are not pushing enough, le- you know, pushing enough plays to the level two people to check them or whatever. Or, you know, since they're rushing out grades just from the broadcast film, they're not actually going back and going through the All-22 really accurately. Like, um, there's this guy, Josh Cohen. I think he's a producer for CBS. He's a spotter for for Tony Romo and Nance, I guess. And frequently, he'll comment on PFF posts about what happened on a certain play and be like, yeah, that's not what happened. So clearly, there's a disconnect that they're grading certain things wrong where actual NFL spotters are much, much better at properly grading these things. And it's it's taken us a long time to figure out like what's real signal when, with grading and like what's just noise. So we've we've done a lot of work in that area and we think we've figured out like the last 15% that PFF kind of misses a little bit. But PFF, PFF is pretty good. The player grades are, are pretty decent. It's just I wouldn't I wouldn't bet them obviously. I think Seth Byrne is, is pretty much proven that those things shouldn't be bet. So yeah, so like if you're looking to get into like the next gen type of stuff for football, Definitely look at Arrowhead Analytics' GitHub. He's he's done a lot of work, and I think that's the next evolution in all of this will be that GPS tracking data to create and model some some edges and player ratings. I don't really want to talk about CPOE. That's a completion percentage over expected. That was one of the edges I had this year. I think like if you were a CPOE person, you knew that like I rode the Titans and Tannehill pretty much the end of the the end of the year and that was a a big source of income for me you know Tannehill I think his priors were a lot lower than the actual CPOE I think Adam Gase is a factor you know and I think in the in the new Titans offense with the the weapons he had obviously the CPOE bears it out you know he was a much better quarterback and quarterback's obviously the most important position in NFL I thought that was a pretty big edge and that that played out pretty well so that was pretty good for this year so yeah just if you're not familiar with CPOE get into that the other thing I had as a note was on and off splits in the NFL so there was a thread recently about like Will Fuller's on and off splits that got somewhat explained away as just like as a result of the difference in EPA on third downs so what I would say about players like Will Fuller Deshaun Jackson, T.Y. Hilton, guys who changed the shape or the geometry of the defense. There may be some signal there in terms of sports betting. Like, I think if those people are out, even though wide receivers are not, you know, super impactful to the line, they may be more impactful than the general value of the position itself, right? So, like, a slot receiver goes out, there should probably be no change in the line. But, like, if T.Y. Hilton goes out, 
there probably is a little bit more signal there than than I think some of us give credit to. I do think he changed. I think there's certain players that change the geometry of the of the defense and the and the separation and the um the size of the windows that that can be thrown into. Um, so that's just something else that you know if you're betting NFL, I would look into some of those on or off splits of of skill players who change the geometry. And then obviously cluster injuries. I mean, obviously Rufus very notably doesn't factor in cluster injuries at a position. My grandmother, grandfather, who are both dead, could be playing offensive line. I'm a wide receiver for the Giants, and his model wouldn't know the difference. That's 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 probably wrong. Um, so, so you know, and that's why his public model went off the rails, right? So I think that there is some cluster injury stuff. It was very easily spotted with the Giants wide receiver situation that one year. I do think cluster inju- injuries in the offensive line is something that people undervalue i think the market is kind of caught up to that a little bit so i don't really think that there's much edge there but i would say that that's another area of exploration for for people doing research who want to bet nfl is maybe to, to take a look at cluster inju- injuries especially in the offensive line i think a lot of people like if you ask them right now can you name five people on a single offensive line i bet you even of the people listening other than Diggs, who tweets out injury information and jbxx like i i don't know how many people could even tweet uh you know even answer that question you know name an entire offensive line uh, that's not of you know you're not a fan of that team right you know so i think that that's something that's pretty undervalued so i think that's pretty much it for nfl oh obviously college i was talking about the all 22 stuff that stuff is fun i like getting into that dark dark net stuff and getting that that video so that's always been fun for me Oh, for college basketball, um, do you use any public rating systems at all into your model? Like to do like like ensemble modeling or anything like that? Um, yeah, a few. Okay. Do you use um, Bart Torvik's T-Rank at all? Um, I haven't used it much, but I've like investigated the site a little bit and browsed upon there a little bit. Yeah, I just, um, I just wanted to give a shout out to him. I've incorporated some of the stuff that he's done, and I've seen that he's not prone to like group think or he doesn't like regress down to the market or anything like that so he'll like actually put up opinions in his projections i don't think it's perfect obviously i don't know if i would bet it blindly but i do think that there's some signal there like his porpagatu stuff is pretty interesting you know if you're betting college basketball and you're not already looking at at t-rank like definitely look at uh at his stuff it's it's, it's pretty good so yeah i think that's pretty much how i bet sports nowadays do you have any questions i don't I- how much are you betting during the day? Like, are you monitoring things or are things mostly automated or like what times are you betting? Is it like you just run a program once a day and like bet some stuff and then run it again six hours later and bet whatever else? Uh, no. So, I mean, I don't want to start, people can start doing some work on their own, but um, obviously they're, so one of the things, if you want to do this for real, you should know all of your outs. You should know, which markets are what I would call like leading markets, right? Like, so, you know, Pinnacle, Bookmaker, stuff like that. Like the Mark Chris, you know, the places that actually are price sensitive, that don't move on air, that actually will move on action. You should know how these markets move when their limits go up and then how the lines move once those limits go up on a in a general idea or basis and then you should have an understanding of like how all your outs and like all the off-screen stuff like when do their limits go up and stuff like that so it really depends on all that information right like so if i know and i don't want to give out a certain site but like if i know at 11 30 east coast time a certain site is going to increase their limits on college basketball 11 31 i'm betting or 11 30 in one second i'm betting but i won't be doing that for 
all places, right? Like not all places raise their limits at the same time. So basically what I'm doing is I'm monitoring. I have like a model that spits out wind probabilities and that basically just compares it to the line. Very easy. If there's um, injury information or like, you know, for hockey it was like starting goalie information, which by the way, I'm, I'm glad I'm not doing hockey anymore. You know, there are ways to incorporate that stuff and then rerun the projection if you find an alert like if your system picks up oh this person is out and it's going to affect the player projection like it'll know to to rerun that specific game's win probability and then it'll it'll adjust against the line but really it depends on the out and then like when the limits go up like i'm not going to do this to bet into openers so i really am limit sensitive if that makes sense yeah makes sense all right so before we get into some of the miscellaneous stuff. I wanted to ask you this question first. So Dave has tweeted, is there any conventional wisdom or coaching tendency where sports analytics Twitter is adamant that the coaches traditionalists are wrong, but you actually side with the old guard instead of the Twitter nerds? Yeah, I'm curious. I feel like I can't think of anything off the top of my head that I have a strong opinion on, but maybe if you brought up a couple examples, I could give my opinion on. All right, so I've got three. All right, so I mentioned it before a little bit. So obviously momentum is not a real thing, right? Like this has been proven out multiple times, like in hockey, like Michael Lopez did the, the, the one research study on like the goal sequencing and stuff like that. However, uh, and I want to make very clear, I do not, I'm not sure that you can quantify this. I don't even think that this happens all the time with a specific individual, but I do think that we should talk about momentum as positive momentum, you know, i.e. the mother lifting the car up to save the baby strength versus like negative momentum where like you see the person snap and quit and stop trying, right? I do think negative momentum absolutely exists, but I don't think it can be quantified or qualified if that makes sense like there are certain times when like, i can watch a sport and i can see the person break i don't know if you can quantify that like you know lebron james covers 12 percent less territory on defense if his team is down over 15 points or whatever like i don't know if there's a specific game state that you can quantify those types of things but i do believe that certain individuals especially low iq athletes that they will quit. No, I'm, I'm serious. Like, like I mean, have you ever... I mean, Kyrgios playing tennis, like, you can sometimes see that dude snap in real time. And they could be, like, you know, 4-4 four, four or whatever in the fifth set. And you just know, just looking at him, you should just bet the other side, you know, if it's, like, even odds. Because the dude has just snapped. You know, I've seen times with LeBron, like, he just stops running sometimes when he was playing for the Lakers last year. I don't know if you can quantify that. I don't know if you can bet on that. But I kind of think negative momentum is a thing. I don't think it happens all the time. I don't ha don't think it happens particular game states. I don't even think it happens all the time with the same person. But I do think that it's a real thing. Do you think I'm crazy or no? No, I mean, I think it depends what you're talking about. But um, that seems to me like at least a good amount of sports betting is trying to figure out like what that is worth. You know, if you have a team that wins their first 10 games and loses their next three versus loses their first three and wins their next 10 and their averages over the 13 games are identical, like the way that we project each of those teams will probably be slightly different. Um, and like figuring out how much different they are, I think is... A very useful exercise in at least most of the sports that I bet, you know, it's like what you said about Curios is correct. And like most of the time the word momentum is used, it's just used very unintelligently like, oh, you know, he's got the momentum. But what they actually mean is, well, now he has a break. Um, 
But sometimes I think that you can expect a player to overperform or underperform the baseline in a certain spot. Um, just knowing what the spot is worth is useful, but a specific person, maybe there's a way that you can figure out they're even above or below that spot that I've figured out. So like, I don't think that this is something that can even remotely be quantified or qualified for team sports, but like individual sports like tennis or maybe some like baseball pitchers, but like not even really. It's really, it's really tennis. I do think that there are some players that will just check out mentally and you can almost kind of see it when watching. But again, I don't know if you can quantify that. I don't, I don't think you should be betting on, on that type of stuff. But I don't know. I hear the discussion about momentum a lot. And it's always, it's never, you know, qualified. Is it positive momentum or negative momentum? You know, I just don't think because you score two goals, like all of a sudden you're a, a super team and you're going to score the third one. Like that just doesn't exist. But I do think, yeah, I do, I do think I've seen players quit. And like just stop running like that's like a real thing so I don't yeah know. i think just making sure you're teasing out the correct elements of each because like if a team scores two goals their win probability goes up but a lot of that is because the goal deficit is now two less than it was before Exa um, exactly versus some other thing so i think a lot like when an announcer or a twitter regular person uses it they're mostly just confusing one for the other. But yeah, I think that, you know, some teams, if they score two goals, you know, maybe they've increased their win probability 10% and some other teams, maybe it's nine or some other players is 12. And there's definitely like there's the baseline, whatever you come up with in your model is going to be an average of all the people. And there's some players or I think there's some parts that are in different, yeah. different tiers of that average. Yeah, I would agree. Like I've never bet tennis, but what you're saying about curious, like I was at that match. Like I, kind of agree it seems like given all players if they you know go from 70 percent win probability to 30 which of the players are gonna fight for 32 and which are gonna go down to 28 curios for sure seems like he'd be in the 28 camp like he he seemed to understand the moment and like tried hard and like when he lost it it was like he knew fuck i just blew 40 percent win probability and may have blown another five just like thinking about that you know yeah i like whereas someone like Djokovic or Maybe even someone like Nadal. Like in golf. Yeah, it's like in golf, there's a lot of players who they seem like unfazed by the moment almost. And I think it's a lot of, it's funny you mentioned low IQ before. I feel like a lot of the dumb players, it's like they're not even, they don't even know that they've blown the 40% win probability. So they don't blow the other 5%, you know? Oh, it's interesting. Like they're just totally immune to what's happening around them that they never get better in the moment and they never get worse. They just kind of like are trudging along playing their regular ability level because they don't even know what's happening. Ah, oh, it's interesting. I like that. That was good. I never thought of it that way. But I don't, th I think usually it's not going to be impacting things much off the baseline, but I, yeah, for sure. There are spots where, so, if so, I mean, if someone stops trying or is trying really hard, like that's super, super, super valuable. So finding those, even if they're infrequent would be, would be worth it. Yeah, I mean, I just don't know if, you know, this is a sports betting podcast. I don't know if you can capitalize that on that or quantify it. I don't know. I just, I, I feel like it's something that I've seen with my eyes watching a sporting event that, you know, I don't really ever hear it talked about by, um, by Twitter people. Two more, idling resources. So this is like, you know, when um, a coach fouls out his player with like two fouls early in a game or whatever, and he sits them and they probably shouldn't be sitting them. The Twitter nerds are absolutely right. Um, coaches are definitely too risk averse when it comes to this uh but there's like a 2012 paper by this guy mayman about early foul trouble and strategically idling idling resources where the conversation is just like a little bit more 
uh, nuance than I think a lot of people give credit to. Like if you have a player who, you know, is a super defensive player, but he picks up two quick fouls and you have not coached him to still be aggressive and the culture of the team is not so that he can stay out there and still perform as efficiently as he normally would if he didn't have two fouls early. There is some research that says that you actually might be better off strategically idling the resource. I do think that Twitter's right though, like 99% of the time coaches are definitely way too risk averse, but I think it's just a, a more nuanced conversation that a lot of people said. Like a lot of the, one of the big things that annoys me about Twitter right now is that every fourth down now, people are like, oh, just go for it. But like there are, Plenty of times where I see like the guys from PFF say, oh, they should have gone for this. But the win probability actually probably says that you should punt here. Like they've just gone so far the other way with the aggressiveness that they actually yeah. that, that they actually don't know the math and they're just way too aggressive. Like I think there was like a fourth and nine and like Burke tweeted out, you know, the game theory man. He tweeted out that the win probability is probably a little bit better if you if you punt. But they were just like, Oh, this is a no brainer decision, go for it. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you saw what I tweeted out during a Super Bowl. One one place had the decision not to go for it on fourth down and two by San Francisco as a 5% difference in win probability. And then the Deck Prism sports guys, they had it as no difference whatsoever. And right, like, I saw that. <laughs> like, like, I hate to break it to both of you guys, but you're both wrong. <laughs> like, and, and, I, and I don't understand how that's possible because there's a guy on Twitter who accurately said the Deck Prism lines live – they were pretty good. Their fair lines were were pretty good against the market. So I don't understand yeah, how their they, stuff's good. Yeah, I, but I don't understand how they came up with fourth and two that there was no difference between punting and gophering it there. Like it's, I mean, it wasn't five, but it also wasn't no difference between the two. Right. And then the only other thing I could think of with the Twitter people and like conventional wisdom. It's like this love affair with like Sashi and Hinky. So don't get me wrong. They were very, very good at things that are easily quantifiable, right? Like they won basically every trade because the trades themselves, like you can kind of quantify the value of both sides of the trade, right? They're all, they were awesome at that stuff. They picked up assets. They basically won every trade. Both of those guys, all power to them. But I feel like nobody ever talks about the cost side of the equation, what does losing actually entail on the cost side? Like nobody actually quantifies it. What is it? What does it cost you in job security? What does it cost you in lost revenue? What does it cost you in agents not wanting to deal with you anymore? What does it cost you with down TV ratings? What does it cost you with opposing teams coming to your arena and you going to other arenas and loss in gate revenue and, and concession revenue? Like nobody ever talks about the cost side of the equation. Yeah. So it's like very easy to see the benefits, but like there's like a whole other part of the math equation that people just ignore and it kind of is annoying. Yeah, I mean, when I was reading your website's forums on the Sam Hinky stuff, oh. I thought that was fantastic because Hinky, it's hard for me to know for sure because I don't bet the NBA. I don't follow the NBA. You know, I can maybe name four or five players. He seemed so like pseudo intellectual, like just was screaming pseudo and like, like just so ridiculous that when he wrote that whatever his manifesto his, uh, memoir or yeah whatever that was um and he was quoting like it was like reading a sixth graders essay you know like he it was almost like it started with you know the dictionary definition of winning is this it was it was just so hard for me to read that I couldn't imagine that this was the sharpest of all sharp guys. And he clearly knew, like, it's almost like he knew to go on a, go for it on fourth down. 
but didn't know like how much that was worth or didn't know why he should be doing it. It it seemed like he picked up a lot of low-hanging fruit that other people were too stupid to do, but he definitely doesn't seem to strike me as like the be-all end-all super super smart guy and for all of Mark Cuban's flaws I would say that Mark Cuban strikes me as a guy that would probably win a trade against Sam Hinkie. You know, like he seems a little bit more intuitively sharp, whereas Hinkie seems intuitively dumb, but knew a lot of the sharp concepts. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know too much about Cuban, so I, I can't, I can't answer. I know nothing about Cuban. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, you know, yeah. I mean, I just think he was really good at the stuff that was easily quantifiable and the stuff that's more difficult to quantify like we just throw our hands up and we ignore it like that's just not how this works right like there's a whole other cost side of this that i don't know people just ignore yeah and even if he did know everything and every move he made was perfect it's like well i mean you got fired two years into this or three years into it or whatever clearly you know there was some risk to all the stuff you were doing if it was perfect and it probably was not perfect or even close to perfect you know yeah. So, I mean, that's 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 one. I mean, again, he was very good at his job. He absolutely crushed it on trades. Like, I'm just nitpicking the, I don't know, maybe the narrative around it. Yeah, it's like, is he a 90 percentile NBA GM? Is he 95 or is he 100? And I think it seems like the impression of him in the general consensus is like, he's 100 when it sounds like you and I are probably like, he's 90. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, for sure solid, but nothing amazing. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And then like Sashi, like Sashi was great too, right? Like he absolutely extracted value, especially with um, like the Brock Osweiler signing. I'm, I'm sorry, trade. Where he got draft picks into the to basically worthless cap space. Like that was fantastic but then the guy went out and drafted like five pass catching receivers in his first draft like if you even if you do like a basic uh age curve analysis like i don't think any of those pass catchers even were on the roster other than like seth deval or whatever who's like this white tight end who is terrible you know i don't even know you know they were good at like certain things and then other decisions just don't make any sense and i just feel like you know the conversation has just gone so far in one direction that you know being a contrarian by by nature i just feel like people should be pushing back a little bit on on some of the mistakes that that these people made all right Diggs, he tweets in who are the three worst players in the nfl who played at least 300 snaps this season this is a really good question because i wondered how i should answer it i actually spent probably the most time on this question than anything else prepping for this um should i be answering it off like film grades total cumulative epa position importance contract simple eye test i had i had no idea so i kind of cheated i kind of picked a whole bunch of people for qbs i mean film grade wise throw a dart at any pittsburgh Steeler quarterback uh, rudolph and hodges were both horrific i mean horrific and in contract and golf and flacco were were pretty bad running back? so what's the deal with what's the deal with golf because it seems like you're saying he's horrific other people seem to kind of think he's not that good isn't is sean mcveigh like another sam hinky i was under the impression he was like super super good and really smart and like kind of all the moves that organization made were like pretty good is that wrong um all right, so there's there's a whole bunch that's going on there. So one of the things that they've changed recently is that you can talk to the quarterbacks, the head coach, through the, the headset and the quarterback's helmet up until, I think, like 14 seconds. I don't know if JBXX would know. Um, but I think it's like up until 14 seconds on the on the play clock. And you can basically have McVay read the defense for Goff and tell him what to do pre-snap. A lot of people think Goff's success came from simply just that, McVay telling him what to do pre-snap. 
Which, if that's the case, I mean, listen, I'm not in the huddle. I have no idea what he's saying to the guy. But it kind of makes sense. Like, Goff is a slow processor. He's got, you know, tiny hands. He's a good thrower of the football, but a very, very slow processor. Um, well, if that's true, then why would they, like, re-sign Goff to a large deal? Why wouldn't they just get fill-in-the-blank quarterback X and let Sean McVay read the plays for him? Yeah, so you're probably asking... Or is the GM just an idiot? Well, that you're probably... That's the second part of the thing that you mentioned in terms of the signings that they've done. The signings have been horrific. They never should have given Gurley the contract. Running backs don't matter. Although, I'll even push back a little bit on that. Like, for instance, Christian McCaffrey... People say he's a running back. He's not really a running back. He is really or should be used as a slot wide receiver that sometimes runs the football. It's just that like Cam Newton and then the atrocity that they had at quarterback this year. They just didn't really use his skill set properly. He's so good at creating separate. One thing that Seth Byrne actually um, opened my eyes to, and he gets all the credit in the world. Uh, football is mainly about creating separation in small spaces and how do you win in small spaces, right? So McCaffrey wins in small spaces by just being super agile, right? Like he can cut both ways. His three cone shuttle was amazing. I forget, I think it's his other shuttle run or whatever combine thing that they have was like off the charts ridiculous he's really a wide receiver Gurley was kind of that way but he's more running back than wide receiver so you should just never pay these people and they pay they paid him like a ridiculous amount like that was bad then Goff has the good year they go to the Super Bowl I think they kind of get stuck and they're like I think we should probably just re-sign this guy and like give him the, the contract extension and they just they just never should um, they never should have. Like I, f- I forget what his contract number is, but I think it's like in like close to thirty million a year. It's it's absurd, and like it may set the fan- franchise back. He's got plenty of weapons. I mean, he could use a he could use a much bigger weapon on the outside. He needs a much a much bigger body. Like I think I think Cooks is a little overrated, although he may be properly rated now. Um, I think the I think the word's out on him. Robert Woods isn't that isn't that big. Cooper Cup is awesome. He's great at you know winning in small spaces, but he's a third down receiver, right? So you know I do think that they probably screwed up. And then obviously the Jalen Ramsey signing, I'm sorry, trade. I think it was a good trade. Jalen Ramsey's an awesome player, you know, but they don't really have many draft assets now. And with the salary cap hell that they're in. They're going to have to, like, offload some salary somehow. Otherwise, they're, they're basically pretty much stuck with the team that they have. So that's it's going to be very problematic for them. I'm pretty down on their their future prospects until their salary cap. Right, let's go back to Dixon's question. Uh, wide receiver-wise. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Were you talking? I don't know. You may have been muted. No, no, no. I wasn't talking. Um, Wide receiver-wise, I mean, you could throw a dart at an Eagles wide receiver. Aguilar was terrible. Jaws was terrible. Uh, or Sego Whiteside. Zay Jones was pretty awful. Uh, tight end wise, uh, I didn't really have a good answer for this one. Tight end, rookie tight ends generally are disappointing, so you should never draw conclusions off rookie tight end performance. Like their age curve in terms of performance is a little weird. They don't really usually make impacts first year, but Noah Fant was a little disappointing. O line, I don't know how Cam Irving is still in the league. Like, I mean, enough already. You want to throw in contract, Marquise Pouncey. And I didn't have time to check, but I don't know if Ryan Khalil had 300 snaps i know he got injured but he's been terrible for three years in a row linebacker i i i picked hassan reddick but like he had his position changed in the middle of the year and i think he actually may have been playing hurt 
So I kind of want to give him a pass. Uh, cornerback, Josh Norman wasn't great. Xavier Rhodes had a tough year. Vernon Hargraves was bad. LaMarcus Joyner was bad. Lonnie Johnson and Ronald Darby were bad. There were a lot of bad cornerbacks this year. Is As someone who I don't watch the NFL or follow, but it seems like there's a hot new cornerback every year. Are cornerbacks the new running backs? Is it like cornerbacks don't matter? No, so cornerbacks actually matter a lot according to pff like they actually just did a big article on what matters more um pressure from the d-line or uh, defensive backs and i think that they found that defensive backs are slightly more important it's just that football analytics people will also tell you that defenses are just a sum of the offenses that they faced that defense defensive strength is way less predictive than offensive strength in the future. So, like, if you're, like, a really good offense, it's more likely that you're going to be a really good offense, you know, the next week as opposed to defense, which really doesn't... It's not... Their defensive performance is not super predictive. I don't think that it's nothing but the sum of the offenses, like the analytics people like to to say, but it's pretty close. But, no, cornerbacks... Some guys can stay somewhat consistent, but, again... Like you see, like there's like a big drop off and a sudden drop off with with cornerbacks. Like there's definitely a, um, I think there's some good research to do there in terms of uh, age curve stuff and contract stuff and like who gets overpaid. There are a lot of like really good cornerbacks. Like Stefan Gilmore is amazing, right? You know, he's been pretty good for a long time. But there's like a lot of guys that just they go, they turn to dust super quick. Like Namdi Awesome. I remember when. He was awesome one year, and then he just was terrible, like instantly. <laughs> like he just like went from great to terrible. So I don't know. I'm not sure. But to answer Dick's question, even though this position does not matter, the worst player in the NFL this year, according to me, with everything that um, I factored in, and this is kind of a joke. This isn't really serious. Adam Vinatieri was fucking terrible. He cost the Colts like two or three games this year. And from a kicker where kickers don't really matter, you can just go get a replacement kicker off the street. He was below replacement level. Like he was so bad this year. He should have retired after week like three or four. He literally cost him two or three games this year. So why does the team have him on the team? I have no idea. Like I, I really think that it was one of those like veteran type things. Like I don't know what is he forty six or whatever or forty two. <laughs> like I really think like it was too much uh, veteran loyalty. They really they should have just booted him week three. Like he literally cost them the season. I but think- now they'll get rid of him. Oh, right? yeah, oh yeah, he's done. He's finished. He's oh, okay. fucked. I think his PFF score, like, if you're bad, according to PFF grades, you're like a 50. Like, that's, like, bad. I believe Vinatieri's PFF grade was 29. <laughs> like, he was he was terrible. Now, obviously, yeah. cumulative EPA-wise, he's not as bad as the worst quarterback. You know, win probability-wise, I don't even think he's the, the worst player. But, like, he was he was terrible, so he'll win the award for me. He's, he was bad. Also, Diggs asked another question that I wanted to ask you first, but I don't know where I put it. Oh, yes. So I'll let, I'll let you answer first. What is the funniest way you have ever lost a large amount of money, at least $200 US? Um, I, I've i definitely bet like on the wrong side of games a lot. You know, probably like 50 times in my life where I've you know, tried to bet 637 and bet 636. Um, I don't really think I have anything all that funny. Oh, I mean, there was, I guess I lost more than $200 on this. So it was, it qualifies. It was a tennis game like two and a half years ago. 
between uh, some American who I forgot and someone else. And a friend of a friend had a tip that the American was not practicing because he had an ankle injury. He hadn't played in three weeks, which we knew. And this guy said the reason was because of an ankle injury that he's really nursing and he might even withdraw from this match. And, you know, he's playing terrible. So I was like, okay, I don't really know anything about tennis. This seems unlikely, but sure. Um, I will get money down for this guy. This guy was trying. I think the guy in question had a net worth of around 50 K okay. and was trying to bet around 40 K on this match. Oh so it was like, he, at least he believed it. So he's like, listen, my brother or my cousin or my friend or whatever is his coach. He hasn't been with him in a few weeks. Cause the guy's hurt. Like this is just an absolute lock. Like he is hurt. He should be plus 400 and he's actually minus 110. So I had like access to a pinnacle account. I was like, okay, sure. I can bet a bunch of money on this for you if you want. The match, I think it might've been, um, it was one of the five or six Americans that are in the top 100, maybe Sam Query or something. And he lost like, he lost like one and two, you know, he just got absolutely destroyed in like less than an hour. Um, so I had to meet up with the guy because he needed to give me money because I lost on my accounts for him. Okay. Um, but I put on like, I think I bet like two grand on it for myself. But the guy, when I met him, he's now like completely broke. Oh no. I mean, his, he, all his info was quote true, but he just had no, it's not like he had some, some history of this where he's like, you know, I think this is worth 80 cents. I think it's worth 70 cents. Like this might've been priced in for to the line for all I know. Like who knows? Like he didn't really have anything proprietary, even though he thought it was. So that's nothing too crazy, but kind of a uh, one memorable one I have. That's pretty good. So the funniest time I lost more than 200 bucks. Well, I don't know if I found it funny, but Miami, the Dolphins going over five, four and a half, five wins this year. They pushed to five. They started 0-7. They traded all their good players. There was just no way that they were ever going. And they had to play the Pats week 17 in a game that the Pats needed. I never thought I had to hedge. Like what, the posterior probability for the Dolphins winning that game didn't change dramatically because... The Patriots needed it. I didn't think I needed to hedge, but somehow I lost all my Miami under four and a half regular season win total. That was pretty funny. I don't. Damn. I, I just I never in a million years. And it's funny too because week sixteen I didn't even think it was even a possibility. And then I'm like, oh crap, this is actually still open liability that I have. I wonder if I should hedge this. And I'm like, what am I, what am I doing? Like I'm not gonna hedge this. The Patriots the Patriots will win this game. Nope, not at all. Yeah. And like I had um I was gonna say that I uh. One of the chats I'm in for stock options trading, one of the guys sold Owen 16 to another guy for like 20 to 1 or something before the season started. Oh, wow. Because, you know, if you, I, I don't know what it was trading and like if it even did anywhere real, but I mean, if you punch in 16 games of an NFL team, like they're just going to win one of them, you know, yeah, like <laughs> they got to be so bad for this to even be. So he was, one of my friends was like, I'm not selling that. And he typed in like, you know, a product of 16 numbers and was like fuck yours 20 to 1 or 10 to 1 or whatever it was um and i think he bought out after game six or something because i think it got down to like maybe 30 percent or something that they were gonna go 0 and 16 yeah, something was, very real yeah because they had i mean they literally traded all of their good players they were basically playing it seemed like they were trying to lose yeah, it was basically nothing but replacement level players until Fitzpatrick starts, and then Devontae Parker gets the uh, contract extension and goes crazy. 
and then and then my life ends and then that basically if yeah. i had if i had won, <laughs> if i had won that it would have been a monster year but literally my biggest edge was miami dolphins under four and a half oh wow that's yeah, brutal. <laughs> yeah so it, it went from a monster year to a very good year and and the best one i've had but it could it could have been a monster year that was pretty funny i actually once lost a tennis bet it's uh, the third set, it's a women's match. It was ITF tennis, which, by the way, I don't know what I was doing betting ITF tennis, but I was. Where was this listed? On, like, Pinnacle or Nitro or something? Uh, Pinnacle. Um, okay. Pinnac- Pinnacle? Don't quote me. I I think it was Pinnacle, but don't quote me. Because Pinnacle me. quotes those challenger stuff, but they're not usually that widely available. Yeah, I th- I think I think it was Pinnacle. Maybe it was Nitro, but I don't I don't think so. I don't think I would have played a ITF on Nitro. There's the, usually the... The added juice on it's not worth it. But it's set three. The person I have is up five love in the third set, and she's serving. And I I go to go get breakfast because it's like seven o'clock in the morning. And I have um, flash score. I've got the the star lit up, so I get the alert for when right. the game is over. So I'm sitting online with my headphones. I'm listening to podcasts or whatever. I get my order. I come back to the car, and I'm like, you know what? I never got that alert. I wonder if flash score is broken. Yeah, no. She went. She lost seven five in a in the third set. <laughs> got got broken like three or four times in a row. Wow. I was like, you gotta Brutal. be freaking kidding me. Uh, and I think I had like I only had like six hundred bucks in the game or something. But like that was pretty funny because I literally thought the game was over, and I'm sitting there. Yeah, when you when you bet enough, those happen. Like I've had so many random basketball or golf bets or something where a dude is up or down. You know five strokes with two holes to play but like you know one out of ten thousand that happens (laughs) yeah i mean like i don't i think it's the only time i've ever lost a bet five love in the third or like five love in the fifth yeah i mean five love in the third she's 99.9 percent it's one in more than a thousand yeah yeah and i i lost that one i was that was was pretty rough um all right so Basically, the only thing I have left is questions other than I wanted to get in on some of the Seville people. Uh, sure, let's do that. That'll be the most popular, probably. Yeah, people probably. love that shit. Yeah, so um, real quick, someone paid me to read an ad. So you got to give me a sec here. Um, if it's for the Cincinnati Zoo, we might have to edit it out later. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, yeah, are you going to be boating when sailing all day long? Do you have an important Twitter avatar picture photo shoot coming up and you don't want chapped lips? Buy Chapstick, promo code FARM, F-A-R-M, that's FARM. And I guess that's for uh, Conspiracy Seth coming up. Okay. Yeah, I guess the, the chap lips is a, uh, is a is a running meme with uh, Seth. So Conspiracy... Oh, that's a joke or something? Yeah, gotcha. I, I think his Twitter avatar, if you look at his his lips there... They're pretty chapped. Let me pull. Let me pull it up here. Um. So while you're um, while you're doing that, okay. Seth is Seth is brilliant, right? Oh yeah, these are pretty chapped. Yeah, pretty chapped. So you um, got to get some. But he lives in New York, right? So it's pretty cold up there. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty funny. That was somebody. Somebody. <laughs> somebody told me I definitely got to say that. Super smart guy, right? The Wab stuff, the Parcel stuff he does for college basketball, awesome. He's a hundred percent right when he says that incentives rule everything around me when you do look at the world in terms of what is the incentive that each of these parties has the world makes a lot more sense he's 100 percent right by the way mayor pete he's now at 80 percent probability to win the iowa thing at uh, election betting odds he recently just spiked so you're gonna you're gonna get home on that sanders no pour, pour one out for uh seville crowd yeah but i don't understand seth's biggest leak is this conspiracy angle of his like if you can never tell like what he's tweeting in terms of oh the refs are in on it jalen hurts is in on it the <laughs> the big 12 is in on it like right. 
like just because an incentive exists doesn't mean that everyone is going to act completely rationally all the time and in the interest that they don't need. Like, why would Jalen Hurts be in on it? Why would a certain referee care if the, you know, I, I, I get it, like the Big 12 gets more money or whatever. It's like the same thing over and over and over again. It's just half the time it plays out and half the time it doesn't. And like, you know, that's because it's not really a thing. You know, he also wanted to bet me or I wanted to bet him that some crypto dude guy was dead and he wanted to believe that he was still alive walking the earth because he died in India. You know, just it's the same thing all the time. Like if he just eliminated that one leak from his life, I think things would go a lot, a lot better for him. Yeah, I thought it was weird. I had a I had an interaction with him because I, I haven't followed him for too long. But I noticed it's a lot of, you know, the pro football focus and football outsider stuff. It's yep. like these websites are pretty good, you know, especially if you compare them to ESPN or, you know, Dave Tooley or your local Chicago Tribune column, like it's pretty impressive stuff that they've got put together. Sure, maybe it doesn't beat the betting markets, but it seems like his whole page is like, oh, these people are like, can't beat the betting markets and they're not that good and their numbers are not perfect. And it's like, well, yeah, duh, but that's not the end of the world. And then sometimes he will be talking about, he will like be, he'll be doing the same thing. You know, Aaron Schott says something that's wrong about a quarterback. He relentlessly hounds him but then he says something insane about something being rigged or the one that put me off was he was talking about the federal reserve which i know a fair bit about and i was like this is just the dumbest stuff i've ever heard in my life yeah, how can you like 90 percent of the time rip on someone for saying dumb stuff but then the other 10 percent of the times just say the dumbest stuff in the world it's a it's a really bad leak of his it really is i will say this though he is 100 percent right though about the pff guys and the betting stuff like if they're gonna go full tout and sell a package he's right to hammer them and oh it's fine to hammer them it's just he i don't i don't care if he does that but the, the other 10 percent, he is pff oh yeah yeah it's it's bad. <laughs> it's bad um but like for instance like frisco josh um who i can't stand who once did a gofundme for eight thousand dollars to buy a stats package and then once something broke on the website this year he had to have somebody else fix it it's just such so and he he uh, parlayed that into a job with 538 writing. Like, it's just so shameful. Like, if you have to raise $8,000 and then you get a job out of that, you know what? You probably should go find the people who donated and give them their money back. Right? <laughs> Whatever. And then he'll reply back to people, ooh, still salty about this. But then he'll say, like, really obnoxious stuff. Like, if they have, like, a wildly off-market prediction and someone calls them out on it, he'll go, like, nah which is something he did the other day, and Diggs went after him. And rightfully so, because he doesn't bet. He's literally broke. He's not... <laughs> he's he's He had to raise $8,000 on a GoFundMe to buy a stats package. Like, this is something that actually occurred recently, like in the last couple of years. Like, you can't be that obnoxious about a, pr a probability or win probability on an event that's about to occur. And just shoot down somebody's idea by saying nah, and then still be broke and not bet into markets. Like either bet, either bet or shut up. Like you can't be both. They, they have football anal football analytic Twitter is the thinnest skinned people of all the different major sports uh, analytic Twitters. Like baseball Twitter is fine. They're annoying, but they're they're fine. Hockey Twitter the same. It's pretty much just like baseball. Basketball, I actually think is the best. I think a lot of those guys are, are super smart. Um, and the conversation is usually pretty good. Actually, I think, I don't know if this is even a hot take, but the reason why the NBA is a terrible product is that the games stink, but NBA Twitter is way better than the actual product. The conversation on, on Twitter with uh, with the analytics people is so much better than the actual the actual game. 
Um, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of smart people like thinking interestingly about the NBA, but I can't watch it. It's just kind of boring. Yeah, it's, to it's, me. it's it's unwatchable. I watch it all the time. I probably watch. And I don't want to pull a Tweety here and say that I'm watching every Franken pitch of a Major League Baseball season, but I probably watch more. I probably watch more sports than most people because you know, as I do like my my ultra running training. Like I just sit on the treadmill. I have multiple TVs in my my home gym, and I just watch sports. I just zone out. So I end up watching a, a whole bunch of sports, you know, but the product is unwatchable. But NBA Twitter is awesome. Football Twitter is the worst. They're all super thin-skinned. They all have this martyr complex that if someone goes after them, they're like, oh, woe is me. If you attack them even a little bit, they cry like, you know, it's just it's, it's pathetic. So I like that Seth goes after them. It's just, you know, can we cut out the conspiracy stuff? Like, enough's enough. Like, it's like, do you know who, like, Brian, what's his name? Brian Tuhi or whatever, the fixes in guy? Like oh, no. it's it's like a it's like a Seth Byrne account basically. Um, okay, <laughs> and it's nothing but it's nothing but fixes. So it's like if you're getting compared to Brian Tui, like maybe like dial it down a little bit. I don't know. And I love Seth. I love Seth. I talk to Seth all the time. But en- enough's enough. You know. <laughs> climate si- climate science Lou. So Seville has two really smart guys who do weather modeling, and I think Lou at one point was fighting them on climate science which is just like a conversation so far outside his depth it's it's embarrassing okay he's a smart he's a smart guy um he's the nazi the guy with all the different accounts thick slicing right yeah um doesn't seem like the nicest guy in the world yeah listen listen listen, (laughs) i'm not gonna get into his his politics i don't care either way really in fact i probably would say that i might lean more his i've never voted um, and I will never vote because people implicitly think that just because you vote a certain way that you agree with every single bad thing that the other person's done, which I just refuse to be lumped like that. So you know what? I opt out. Forget that. I'm not just not never voting. I'm never talking about politics ever. But obviously he leans one way. Um, and that's what's, what's great about Seville, right? Like we have guys that are little, little communists on one side. And then we have, you know, we have, we have Lou on the other. Um, right. But like we all only have one thing in common which is you know prediction markets and you know misop- misanthropy and calling out nonsense on on twitter which is you know i guess something to bond over but yeah i mean he's you know there's certain conversations he probably should never have again and climate science is, is probably one of them right? yeah <laughs> I, I would i would probably stay away from that um who are the weather guys in seville um i don't want to dox them you know oh sure you know okay. no there's there are two guys that are that are really really brilliant that are you know like if you're doing weather modeling like that's so much more complex than sports like i have all the respect in the world for for people who do that like obviously obviously the accuracy is an issue but it's because it's way more freaking complicated so sure you know i have i have a lot of respect for those guys all right so uh who else uh, you know, Sizzle, listen, I love Sizzle. Sizzle once DM'd me an opportunity that he never even had to just because he knew I had an interest in something. And he reached out to me. I never had contacted the guy before. And I'll never forget that. So props to Sizzle. But like enough J-Mac and, and KKK Travis. Like nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. Like literally nobody cares. Like enough's enough. Like, yes, it's great. Like in the spirit of Groovin, Groovin would appreciate it. But, like, just anything else. I mean, I just, <laughs> my eyes roll in the back of my head. Like, let's just, let's move on. Like, I think we've we've covered this topic. You want to do Jumbo stuff? 
Listen, I think Jombos. Is, <laughs> I, I think Jombo. I think Jombos is still fresh enough that we can go after Jombos a little bit. But that's I mean, funny you said Jombos. I always read it as Jambos. Oh, Jambos, Jombos, whatever. I mean, <laughs> I don't actually ever talk to people, so if I mispronounce a whole bunch of words, sure. No, I don't know which one it is. I I don't either. I just always read it Jambos. Yeah, whatever. I mean, if you want to do that, great. I think that's worthwhile. It's fresh. It's new. This guy's still in the public eye. I just I just don't care about Clay Travis and J Mac. I mean, yeah, was... the J Mac stuff. I've never I've never heard anyone talk about that guy outside of sizzle's feet i literally don't know who he is except for sizzle tweeting about it yeah i just i just don't care i just i just don't care listen super nice guy though but i just i just don't care Diggs is great i love Diggs, obviously but i mean i don't need him to retweet every single uh person who's got an injury in the nfl <laughs> so um but he's a great guy too and i really like him but i mean enough retweets about injuries like I, 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 I get the same tweets bro i don't need you to i don't need you to retweet every single one of them and I love he argues. He loves to argue with the Roto World account, which I don't even think anybody monitors the replies. But he loves just replying to that to, the, to that account. I'm like, I just I don't think anybody's ever actually ever going to read this. I don't know. Whatever. Different. Stories. Yeah, it's so funny seeing some of like his replies. Like there'll be six responses to like an egg, who's like the Bucks are awesome. <laughs> He's like actually like this offensive lineman was a little bit below average last season. And they'll go back and forth, like, for seven, eight tweets, you know? And, like, the other person on the end is sitting in their mom's basement or something. And Diggs seems like he is, but is actually, you know, like, a big better. It's so funny. I mean, like, listen, I guess when you have that much time and that much disposable income, you can do these things. But, like, I just, I don't, I don't have time for it. I mean, I lo- listen, and I, I, I like the guy a ton, but, I mean, enough. All right, let's get into Count Chocula, or, or Count Cuckula, as some people call him. Who is Count Chocula? Uh, it's plus EV. Um, that guy, oh, okay. that guy who did um, what the hell was his freaking name? He just he got brought up recently the other day. The really crazy physics guy who had the baseball model. He used to call him Count Chocula. The physics guy. Oh god, what was his name? I forget. Uh, I, I I won't be able to remember it now. Okay. Was he a tout or something? Yeah. No, well, sort of ish. He like kind of was trying to sell something, but then he was doing like. Sp- Spin, spin velocities of pitchers and modeling the physics of pitching and creating a baseball model again. It was just like nonsense. It was like total, okay. total nonsense. And plus EV would go back and forth with him like nonstop. And plus EV was right. The guy was a loon, but there's enough. So like we've already got into, I mean, he wrote for, for Guru Elite. That was embarrassing. He should have been kicked off the list immediately just for that. That was like a moment that why would you would ever do that is just beyond me. His Pinnacle stuff when he writes for Pinnacle is great. You just can't write for Guru Elite. Like that's just, that's just not what we do here. However, I mean, even writing for Pinnacle is like kind yeah. of an interesting choice for a sports yeah. better to do. Listen, I agree, but at the same time, like he does cover some interesting information. I don't think that he's giving away any edges by talking about the Kelly criterion and parameter uncertainty. Like I really don't. So whatever. Like let him let him do that stuff. And by the way, not everybody should tweet. Like obviously, he started tweeting a lot more once like legalized betting became a thing. But like if you're gonna tweet a lot more, you then can't tweet. And hold on, let me let me pull this one up because. Well, one thing is he tweeted for brick and mortar um, Las Vegas odds. Like, where do you get those? Like, I feel like in 2019, you probably should know where to get Las Vegas odds if you're like a sports better, but that's neither here nor there. And then he asked, like, where, <laughs> then, then he asked, like, where do you get tennis data like a week later? And I'm like, what? Like, 
like you're telling on yourself. You get that, right? Like you're actually telling on yourself if you don't already know where to get these things. Yeah, people tell themselves a lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, here we go. I was following a guy last week on Twitter a couple weeks ago who like was complaining about bad beats for like a month straight, just like nonstop. It's like, dude, we get it. Uh-huh. I even tweeted one time. I was like, no one cares about your bad beats. I didn't tweet it at him, but it was like, just nobody cares. After a month of this, he's like, man, all these bad beats over the last month, like they've cost me like almost 10K. And I was like, okay, like, how do you not understand you're outing yourself right now? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> listen, I'm, I think I've tweeted a bad beater now and then, but so I'm not, I'm not above the fray. But yeah, that's that's bad. So <laughs> D- Diggs retweeted this one. This is why I saw this one in my feed. Oakland Kansas City spread sitting at 11, but for some reason, Pinnacle teaser line is 13. Is it worth teasing to plus 19 and getting two free points? If so, can we please refer to it as the schlong teaser? Like, I mean, I don't even know what to do with that tweet. Like, it's just. It's just, it's just bad. I, it's just bad. I think that tweet, the tennis tweet, and the brick and mortar Las Vegas line tweet all came within like three weeks of each other. And I was like, all right, that's it. I'm out. I'm like, no more. I can't. I can't take anymore. Like, that's, that's yeah. If you want to be this bastion of sports betting discussion, which he's great at the math. Don't get me wrong. And by the way, I think he's like a really good family guy. He's got a great job, great life. I, I mean, he's tweeted about his Tesla a thousand times. Which, by the way. Why do sports betting just by fucking Tesla calls? Like, you know. Uh, yeah, that would have been a good idea. We should yeah. have this podcast four weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, just <laughs> just by Tesla calls. You know, and that's that's kind of why this podcast probably isn't that interesting because, like, I'm not really a pro sports better. I mean, like, they're just way easier ways to make money. Like, like sports betting is so difficult. Like, and then you hear about, like, these edges, like, you know. I guess, like, Tesla just seemed, like, obvious, you know, although I didn't really get I didn't really suck much alpha out of that. Um, but like, yeah, I would say that's not true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, definitely but, was not obvious in before it happened. Yeah, but I mean, like crypto, like I mean, that was stupid. Like you know, and like there are still like I'll give you know anybody still listening. So we talked about this on the phone when we were scheduling this. Um, using Bitmex or Deribit, but Bit- Bitmex is better, and they're actually releasing a. Um, a Ripple Quanto today, actually. It's basically a perpetual contract that pays you funding. So what you can do is you can buy the actual spot asset, the actual coin. So you can buy either ETH or Ripple. These work better with ETH and Ripple because the funding is probably going to be pretty broken like it has been for, for ETH. You basically buy the coin and then you short with BTC on BitMEX. You basically can create what's called a synthetic USD by basically 1x shorting. As the price moves, like your USD value doesn't change. But the funding is so broken that the funding is always positive. Longs almost always pay shorts. I think it's something like 92% of periods, longs pay shorts. Even in massive bear downtrends, longs pay shorts. You could have just set up this 1x hedge and I think made like 130% in a year. Like something just absurd. There's like free alpha like that in the ecosystem in these super inefficient markets. Like it's like why even waste time sports betting? Like it's just like a waste of time. Like that's no risk other than the counterparty risk that BitMEX just absconds with your BTC, right? This is like no risk free alpha. And it's, I don't know. It's like, I you know, I, I feel bad that I'm not really doing as much sports betting as I was because this podcast is probably not that great. But like there are opportunities like that in crypto where these legacy instruments that still haven't really kind of come over to crypto haven't been introduced that you can make, you know, ridiculous amounts of money and it's pretty much low risk or whatever. So like I've always talked to um, 
some of the Seville guys who are traders by profession. And I tell them, listen, if I can do this, I can only imagine what they would do. Because like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, I don't even know. When I first started trading, I didn't even know what a candle was. I couldn't read a chart. I didn't, I didn't know anything. I just kind of knew the tech part of things. You know, you learn, you learn enough in a couple of years and it's like, I don't know how we got off on that topic. Who well, else? it sounds interesting. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested in this free, uh, yeah. free risk-free money. Yeah. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds ridiculous and like the edge will probably go away at some point, but as of right now, it still exists. Like it still exists. It's a little bit less obviously, but this has been going on since um, July 2018. So, like, it's, what are we now? Like, 19, 20 months of this? And it still hasn't gone away? So, I don't know. And they're introducing a new contract literally tonight. So, it could... Yeah. So, what do I do? I go on to BitMEX? Yeah, so... <laughs> what do I sell? What do I buy? So, basically, you have to go to, like, any, like, spot exchange. Like, spot just meaning, okay. you, like, you actually buy the asset, right? Sure. So, like, Coinbase. You go on Coinbase, you buy Ripple or you buy ETH. And then you have to also have okay, B- I got them. you also have to have BTC right on because Bitmex only accepts BTC deposits. You okay. go you go to you go to Bitmex and then you short the ETH perpetual or the Ripple perpetual depending on on how that thing launches tonight. And then okay. you'll see like there's a funding period on the perpetual contract that pays out every okay. eight hours. The default is always 0.01 positive, meaning that you get paid 0.01% on your position every eight hours. And since it's positive, that means longs pay shorts. Oh. So literally you just collect the funding. 0.01% or 1%? No, 0.01% every eight hours. So it's like 0.03% daily, but that's like the minimum. Okay. The maximum, sure. the maximum it can get to is 0.75% every eight hours. And there's you can easily pull the history from BitMEX on the funding history um, table. Gotcha. It's, it gets, so we're just loaning it out. Yeah. So and you you can create this what's called a synthetic USD, right? So as the asset price moves and your short moves, as long as you're one x short and you like your liquidation price is basically infinity, you're good. You're good to go. Like you're not you're not ever going to get liquidated, and your USD value is not going to go down. But if the funding is always positive and you're short on BitMEX, you're always going to be collecting funding. So it's basically free money. So, gotcha. Yeah. So it's 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 kind it's kind of crazy that this even exists the contract launch when eth was like 420 dollars, right it went down to 80 bucks you would think that in this super downtrend where the price of the asset went down 75 percent, that there would be like so much market pressure that shorts would almost definitely be paying longs this funding nope the entire time huge funding periods longs paying shorts the entire time and i think it's because the market is so inefficient that the market makers have figured out how to relate the spread on the exchanges that are inside the index pricing. So like there's like five exchanges that make up the index price that figures out that's in part of this um, funding equation. And I think the market makers have figured out how to manipulate the spread just enough to always make sure that the funding is ticked positive. And it's crazy. It's like, it's literally 92% of the periods. Um, and then of the 8% periods, I think only like 16 of them are ever over negative 0.01. So as long as you're short, like you're always collecting funding. Like I've been sitting in this ETH short, uh, collecting funding for 13 months now. And it's like an absurd amount of money. And it was even better because, so since uh, the deliverable on BitMEX is BTC, the BTC, so the ETH BTC ratio, which is, you know, the ETH price divided by the BTC price, that ratio got destroyed since July 2018 or so. Since it was also going down so much, my BTC funding 
that I'm getting paid is actually worth more than the ETH asset that I'm actually holding. It's like crazy how how ridiculously lucrative this was. Now, I will say it's probably not going to be as lucrative going forward because if there is this bull run that happens, um, it is very likely that the ETH BTC ratio outperforms, but um, it's not guaranteed. And the BTC having is only a couple months away. So I expect some, some little run up having will occur. There'll be a pretty good drop. And then maybe like two months later, you'll see the, the slow climb up as the issuance uh, and supply shock stuff starts to uh, trickle into the market. Some free alpha for some, for some people. All right, crypto loan. I can get on board with that. Yeah, yeah. Who else? Who else is in Seville? Oh, Kunk. Listen, I love Kunk, and I always want his, you know, his laughs when I tweet memes at him. But, like, he's like the episode of Seinfeld where Jerry does the voice and George goes to him. Is, is this all the voice does is hello and la, la, la? Like, it's just Barnwell jokes, 69 jokes. Like, is, is there anything else? Like, is he actually is? Is there any more material other than the Barnwell jokes and the the cross sport score jokes and you know enough? <laughs> so like maybe you know maybe some some new material. I've I've made my peace with with Mitty. Um, Mitty was a notorious person who would want to um, potentially eat dogs while being uh, probably not in the best shape. So I think maybe skipping the dog course would probably be a good idea. But me and me and him have have made up. Um, Norm, I love Norm, um, but he's a sociopath. Yeah, so that's mostly what his like real personality is like. He's kind of a no, kind of an out there guy. No, he's the nice. He's the nicest dude you'll ever meet. He's just he's you know he just grew up in the troll generation of, of the internet, right? So he's just a, gotcha. he's a he's just a troll. But in terms of advantage player, like he knows his stuff. Not that you'll ever see any of that content on his Twitter feed, but the dude dude knows his stuff. The guy is ridiculously smart. Um, and he gives out he gave out one play that was infamous for value. Like the line was it was a baseball over under, I think it was like two runs off. Um, and he gave it out to everybody. So he's what he just tweeted out like this is wrong or something? No, he, he no shared it privately with people. Oh wow. And he let and he let other people bet it. So he's he's a nice guy, just you know, crazy. He's a lunatic. Nice. And I once lost my dog. He paid like 500 bucks to all these dog alert services to help find my dog. So super nice guy. He doesn't know me from a hole in the wall. Nice. Yeah. So who else, who else is in Seville? Cajun Cooks is a, just, he's brilliant. I have not a bad word to say about him. JBXX is super brilliant. Oh, Muck Nuts. Now, Muck Nuts, he's super smart. He's obviously won the the one super contest, not the, the big one, the other one. So he's obviously a super, super sharp guy. He has verifiable uh, results that kind of back it up. But I mean, this pivot into the pro George Soros account is it's, it's intolerable. Like enough, <laughs> enough's enough. Like I, I understand he's trolling uh, Cletus and Nazi Lou, but like, I mean, enough's enough. I mean, George Soros is like a walking zombie at this point. Like, can we just, can we stick to sports please? Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I I liked the pivot at first, like that was like a year ago, but like now it's nothing but Soros tweets, and it's it's just unbear- it's just unbearable. Yeah, there's a lot of Soros tweets yeah. on that page. Yeah, he's he, again super smart dude, but just enough's enough. Uh, Cletus is like a mini Seth. He's like between Lou and Seth in the conspiracy. In fact, Groovy Mahoven said uh, once that the uh, the bolt headed conspiracist describing him. I think he's also pretty good, but like his Twitter feed has turned into. Let me post headlines from core questions or whatever and then answer them. And then he answers them wrong half the time. Like, <laughs> like, is it wrong to 
is it wrong to like criticize my obese son? And he says, yes, no, it's not, it's not wrong. Like you should get in shape. Like, you know, otherwise you're going to end up with a son like, you know, Dale Doback, who's fat and obese. So you definitely don't want that. I think that's pretty much everybody in Seville. I can't really think of, um, of anybody else. Um, who has the Seville list? Like, where can I find that? So I can just oh, jump, Ra- run through it real quick. Rollub, um, O, O, R O L U B, I think he's the Obi Toppin guy. You could also go to my Rollo. list. You can go to my list and members of in the Contrarianville. Um, okay, let me find this real quick and see if I missed anyone. Yeah, he's a super nice guy too. But then he did the podcast with Bullock with the tout, which was a real lapse in judgment. So that was probably pretty problematic. I probably wouldn't have done that. And hopefully, on in retrospection, that was probably pretty bad. And by the way, I'm not perfect either. The maddest digs ever got it. Yeah, the maddest digs ever got at me. And rightfully so, I may add. Somebody tweeted at Fezzik, how much is a half a hot dog worth for the hot dog eating contest? Okay. And Fezzik replied, I would think the variance around 71 isn't that great. I would buy half a hot dog for 15 cents, I think. And then it was another half. Um, he was worried about a backdoor hot dog tweet that uh, also exists. And I nominated it for DTOTY. And Diggs was annoyed and very mad. Because it was a bad tweet, <laughs> and and he's right. Um, history has not shown has not shown very uh, brightly on my decision to nominate that tweet. And then I guess it won like round one, and Diggs was just infuriated with me. You know, I, I apologize. He was right. I was wrong. I so my last question on Seville: What is uh, Squeaky Clean? Oh, I don't know. He's he's a, a locked account. I think he posts like basically like college sides, but I unfollowed it because I just don't I don't tail other people's picks. It's not not worthwhile to me. Okay. Yeah, but um, he does post plays. Like he's actually probably the only civil person who does post plays. But I just I don't follow him because I don't I don't really tell other people. Crypto questions. Um, any chance Craig Wright is Satoshi? Zero. Craig Wright is a fraud. Thoughts on BCH giving percent block rewards to a corp, not even faking decentralization anymore? Uh, yeah, I mean, they've already backed down off of that. So basically what they're doing is with every block that's found, there's like a reward. It's basically like a network security subsidy. Um, it's called a block reward, but it really is for securing the network. They were going to give 12.5% to developers in a developer fund, which is a drastic deviation from the white paper. And it was decided upon by a group of like five mining pools, which is like obviously breaks decentralization in a huge way. This is not BTC. This is Bitcoin Cash, the the fork version. Um, they've already started backing down off that because people realized that that was ridiculous. Future of ETH years ago, you said you would hold a bit, still believe. So actually I went back to the post I wrote in 2017. I actually think ETH has a true value of zero in the in the longest time horizon. However, that doesn't mean that it's not gonna go up, right? Like these assets basically are priced irrationally. I do think that BTC is the tide that rises all boats. So as BTC possibly rises pre-having and then maybe at two months after having, uh, ETH will probably find its legs. Um, also, the amount of ETH locked up in DeFi contracts, basically decentralized finance, is over 3 million ETH now, which is something like, so 3 million divided by 92 million of the supply is locked and can't be spent. As that continues to grow and as the market continues to be bullish, that should increase volatility because there should be less float. So I think ETH in the short time horizon is probably pretty good, but they're going to be migrating to something that's called proof of stake. Just think of it as if you own 10 tokens, like, and I own five tokens, like you have like 
twice as much quote unquote voting power as me. It's not really voting power, but that's the easiest way to describe it to lay people. If that doesn't work, that migration, then bad things are going to happen. But if it does work, it's very possible that that ETH takes off because it gets locked up in these things called validator nodes. So there's even less float now available. So there could be a real supply shock that occurs on that on, that occurs on ETH. But that's going to be many, many months away. That's that's a while from now. Boo Earns. Didn't see the early question beside Nephi, but if this is, wasn't covered, I would be interested in general Bitcoin wallet advice for active use and also storage advice for savings. Also, any advice how to incorporate Bitcoin into a will and set up transfer in case of sudden death? This is a fantastic question. So... I won't talk about the specifics about my setup. Um, like if someone was to break into my house right now and kidnap me or waterboard me or whatever, they would get nothing. I have it set up so that there's no way that I could break. Or if even if I did break, I couldn't tell them my private keys even if I wanted to. If you die, you should have some type of dead man switch. If you don't have a dead man switch, one of the things you should do is if you have a cold storage wallet and you have an amount that's worthwhile to you, you should probably split up your private key between two to three lawyers and have them hold a portion of your private key. You should not use a bank safety deposit box. Bank safety deposit boxes can be cracked open without warrants. The Bank of America recently cracked open a bunch of safety deposit boxes just due to inactivity. They also cracked open safety deposit boxes because they said they sent a letter to the customer, which the customer never received. The contents of that safety deposit box was then sent to a holding facility where those contents disappeared. So you definitely don't want to use a safety deposit box. For 99% of people listening to this, um, actually, it may be less than that because there's probably a bunch of high net worth individuals from Seville. You probably will get away with a Trezor or Ledger hardware wallet. It's probably good enough for you. And then you just, you know, if you encrypt the, the passphrase somewhere, like, you know, you give that to either a lawyer or, or someone, maybe like your, your loved one. That's probably good enough for most people. But if you really want to do it the right way, you should be doing something like a Shamir uh, secret slicing of your your private keys. Split it up, give it to a bunch of different lawyers or bonded couriers or whatever. You know, the basically the CSW except without lying. Um, and that would probably be the best way to transfer assets over. Um, any coins that you leave on an exchange, will, you know, you'll have no problems. They'll just have to probably show a death certificate or whatever. That's just like any normal, you know, death process. But your cold storage, that's probably the best option for your computer. You know, I mean, I won't talk about my solution, but obviously you're going to want your wallet dot that file encrypted. That passphrase has got to exist somewhere. You should probably tell your loved one where that passphrase is. There are devices like crypto steals and which are basically just like steel wallets that can hold your your passphrase so that they're fire resistant and stuff like that. Those are options for like normal people. I would suggest, again, putting those in an area where if your house burns down, that there's stored somewhere that's that abides by proper disaster recovery protocol, which is you want to be like at least 500 miles away from where the backup is. A lot of people learned that lesson with Hurricane Sandy, right? Like if you had backups in New Jersey and you were a New York business, you got destroyed, right? So you want your backups to be a certain distance away. But yeah, there you should have a multi-step process. It should be sliced out. Lawyers are probably best. Safety deposits are the worst. Fire resistant steel devices are really good. Jameson Lop has done a lot of um, research in terms of the fire resistance uh, specifications of every product that's out there. So I would I would take a look at his uh, Medium articles. David Hess writes, how many crypto kitties do you own? I own zero. That's nonsense. Collectibles on the blockchain are, is never going to go anywhere. 
don't I wouldn't even worry about it. Schnorr Taproot Bip just proposed by Occam's Edge. So Schnorr Taproot are two Bitcoin improvement proposals that are supposed to help contract uh, smart contract scripting for Bitcoin, something that ETH has that Bitcoin doesn't have. So Bitcoin right now is basically just used for speculation and, and payment transfers. ETH has a lot more smart contract language where you can do like more interesting things, more complex types of transactions. It's like programmable money is the meme that, that they use. Schnorr Taproot gets us kind of closer. However, I once thought that Taproot would not be a contentious fork, but it's going to end up being pretty contentious because, and I'm not a quantum quantum computing expert but taproot actually lowers the quantum resistance of bitcoin and it's because of the implementation of ecc elliptic curve cryptography now i'm not an expert so if i said something wrong there please don't hold me to that i don't know how not contentious this proposal is going to be so i think that's actually something to really keep an eye on people will say that quantum computing is so far out it's not really an issue however like satoshi's coins satoshi supposedly owns 1.1 million coins if those things never move they never get upgraded so that when quantum computing comes along those coins will probably get stolen that's like a big problem with bitcoin you know we've got to keep an eye on how quantum resistant Bitcoin really is. There will be bigger problems, right? Like all SSL um, security would break and TLS security would break with, with uh, internet browsing. So people would have bigger problems, but it's still a problem. So if Satoshi's coins move, it's very possible that that proves the existence of quantum computing by a nation state. Favorite multi uh, lightning network. Lightning network is kind of not going anywhere fast. I don't really buy that it's going to create proper layer two scaling. It's only good for micro payments. You have to fund channels. And if the channels aren't funded, you can't actually complete your payments. So for instance, if I want to spend enough to buy a coffee, yeah, those payment channels are probably well-funded and I could probably get that done. But say I want to send 100 BTC to Bitfinex. Nobody's sticking 100 BTC in a Lightning channel. And even if they do, like who's replenishing that? Like you're basically putting 100 BTC in a hot wallet that if there's any type of vulnerability, vulnerability with any of the Lightning clients, everybody loses their coins, potentially. That's problematic. So I think Lightning Network has got some flaws. I, I think it's good for micropayments and, and not much else. Favorite multi-sigs. Multi-sigs just meaning that you need like two or more keys to actually complete a transaction. Armory's pretty good. Electrum's pretty good. Thoughts on CoinJoin. Okay, so this is good for sports bettors. So let's say you're an American and you're betting BTC and you win BTC and you withdraw. Uh, in the past, if you withdrew directly to Coinbase, they would flag your transactions as coming from a gambling site. This is banned, they close your account. So this is no good. Coin joins basically mix your coins or your unspent transactional outputs with other coins. Basically like I've got a dollar bill that's got cocaine residue on it. I put it in a pile with a whole bunch of other dollar bills. I get a clean dollar bill out the other side. The problem is, is that the coin joins leave a certain trace so that you know that the transaction is actually part of a coin join. So Wasabi was using the same fee wallet. Whirlpool transactions all have like the same type of signature. So you can kind of tell which transaction, transactional outputs come from mixers or coin joins and economic nodes are now banning any coins coming out of coin joins this is problematic because if you now can't send your coins to cash out anywhere these coins are tainted and if these coins are tainted how exactly are you extracting any value from them as of right now coin joins should not be used you're better off hiding in plain sight you're better off depositing into like a say a, a bitmex or whatever and then withdrawing and getting 
cleaner coins out the other side or something like that and breaking the, the forensics chain. That's probably a better option. Do you still algo trade? Yes. Post happening price predictions. We already went through that. Plug and play nodes. Uh, Cats actually got rid of their, their plug and play node. They're open sourcing now. Comments on insane hash rate increase last 18 months. Uh, just next gen miners coming out and uh, miners speculating more and more on the BTC happening, being bullish and the bear market potentially being over. Has hash rate decentralized decentralized enough in your opinion no probably about 70 percent of all hash rate exists in china with another percent or so in like iran which is probably pretty bad bitcoin probably could do with more decentralization in mining i'm not exactly sure how we get there i don't know if um homes will have to start mining but something has to happen there regarding coin join thoughts on the wasabi samurai beef yeah wasabi was wrong samurai was right uh regarding lightning blah 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 we were into that um, so that's all the crypto questions. So obviously I kind of tried to fly through those as fast as possible. If you guys have any other crypto questions, I definitely will feel free to, to send them to me and answer them. Cause I have, I can, I can basically answer any crypto question you may have. And then we have some miscellaneous questions in order. Kevin, uh, how did you get into ultra running? Where does your brain go when you're running for that long? How does it impact your betting? Cause you're training for that many hours. So where does my brain go? I just blank. Honestly, I think like all the time when I'm not running. So when I run, I basically just don't think of anything. It's a really good escape for me and it really keeps my stress level down. So that's kind of like why I like it. And I can basically run forever. So, you know, if I really need a, a really good break, it's like a really good way to just like clear my mind. And how does it affect my betting? It really doesn't because of automation. Um, and actually I watch a lot of sports, mostly on replays. I don't watch live sports because I don't really feel the need to sweat stuff. So it really doesn't affect it at all. But I train a lot at home. When I do go out with like, say like the, the dog and stuff, you know, when I come home, I've got a lot of stuff to catch up on, but it really doesn't really affect my betting too much. Most of it is is pretty automated at this point. Subtle alterity. What do you have to say to the fact that ultra runners are people who are scared of running fast and make up progressively longer and longer races until they can't win one? Uh, I got to tell you something. This was like the greatest question I've ever gotten. He's 100% right, by the way. Doing speed work hurts. Doing speed work is hard. Running fast is super hard. Most people do marathons now with social markers, but the average marathon speed is actually getting slower and slower. We're not getting progressively faster as a species. We're getting slower. And that's because people just want the medal to post on Instagram and stuff like that. Ultra runners are kind of people who want to escape that, but they do race against the course and not against people. So they do get away with not doing the really hard speed work. So he's 100% right. I know he's trolling me, but he's right. Ultra runners don't really, you know, some people do speed work, but a lot of them don't. And it's, it shows in their body, um, especially the older people. So for anybody who doesn't know what ultra running is, it's just distances longer than a marathon. Um, and I've run a couple hundred mile races. I haven't raced recently, but I do run ultra distances on my own for myself. I just don't travel too much anymore because it's a really selfish activity. I don't want people waiting around for me while I'm running. I go to the races by myself and then I leave, you know, by myself, the dog and the cats and stuff by themselves. So I try not to race too much, but you know, there will come a time when I'll, I'll go back and race again just to prove to myself that I can do it. This one's for you, Phil, since I've talked a long time. All right, Bi what do you got? Biggest fraud on here that people wouldn't realize is a fraud besides me. That's from Jezespin. Um, what, is it, what does that mean, a fraud? Like, misrepresents himself? I don't know. Whatever you whatever you think. Yeah, I mean, there's... I think there's a lot of... A lot of people on sports Twitter will try to be, like, kind of the end boss. And I do it, too, mostly as a troll. There's a lot of people that represent, like, they're betting, you know, lots of money or something, when, in fact, they might be betting a tiny amount of money or not even betting at all. I don't know everyone on Steve-All, but I would be curious how many people, like, you know, make effectively zero dollars a year 
betting on sports. Oh, that's a good point. Like I almost, if you're talking about sports betting and you're making like effectively zero dollars, then, you know, I feel like that's a certain tier of person that you kind of can't pretend to, to know that all that much unless you're actually making some real money from it. Yeah. I mean, I think even, I mean, I, I think there's probably very few people in Seville that don't actually make, make money. I mean, those, I mean, some of those guys, that's their only income, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't know many of these people. But like, yeah, yeah, who's on the list? Yeah, I don't know. So my answer for this, I thought really long and hard about this one. The guy, and we talked about this before we started recording. The person I think is the fraud that gets a pass from us that we don't really talk about too much is probably Ed Fang. Um, and I got this clip. I'm going to play it off my phone. It's him and Rufus talking on Ed's podcast about his model, his public model in Central Florida. So let me let me try to play that. Yeah, outliers can be difficult. Well, yeah. I mean, we can we can break models. I mean, in my public college football rankings, Central Florida's at the very top, which is like, oops. Yeah, they're not the best team in the country. How, how does that happen? Well, they played two games. They destroyed FIU, which you expect, but they beat Maryland by a lot. Maryland beat Texas. Yeah, Maryland beat Texas. Texas beat USC. USC beat Stanford. There's a string of US, UCF beat Maryland, who beat a bunch of good teams, and that's rocketing um, transitive uh, well and and the fact is we only have two games on them right so had they played a couple more games like you know we'd we'd see them drop to where they where they normally are Um, i think you're not using priors for that no that's actually with the prior so what that that's got a ton of preseason weight in there it's one of these things where i think they were about 58 so if you only use games from this year they were about 58 points better than an fps average which is absurd that is um, the best teams usually are pushing 30. Check and make sure your like, finger didn't accidentally click like the number wrong. No, no, I, I, I checked. But, I mean, it makes sense in terms of who they beat, who Maryland beat. And, obviously, the numbers don't know that Maryland didn't have their first string, had their first-string quarterback against Texas but didn't have their first-string quarterback against Central Florida. But Maryland, like, we didn't – I'm guessing you didn't expect Maryland to be that good. Right. I didn't. But, but – so – Okay, but so for the numbers just this year, it doesn't consider all that. Uh, like, you're not comparing UCS performance to Maryland's performance with the weights priors with in season. You're comparing it to Maryland just based on this season. Right. So okay. when you do that, that's where they end up 58 points better than FPS average. When you combine that with some preseason stuff and a model that basically a regression model that weights this year, last year, year before, turnovers, returning stars. When you put that all together, a Central Florida still ends up on top, which is a little embarrassing. But, you know, I could have fixed it. I could have, like, put another model together that made a lot more sense and put them up there on my site. But I was like, no, you know, we need to recognize that models break. And, uh, and you need to recognize this is not what I'm offering members on my site. They get a much better model that has a much more reasonable look at, at Central Florida. So you built a model that is worse than another model that you... No, 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 no. So... <laughs> I mean, is that, the mo- is that not the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard in your entire life? Yeah, it's there's a lot of people like that. It's funny that that last part even happened because I had this ready to roll before that. A lot of people think of a model like, oh, I built this thing. Here it is. Like, maybe it's useful. Maybe it's not. That'd be pretty neat if it was useful. And then someone suggests, like, an obvious way to improve it. And they're like, well, no, like, this is what the model is. And we know what it is. And we know what it is. And it's like, dude, you don't have to, like, be so weird. Can't you just, like, make it a little better? (laughs) It's so funny. At the end, he specifically said, well, you know, I could make it better. But, like... It's so it's so ridiculous, and it, it, this actually leads to probably my favorite D you know DTOTY tweet ever. Even though it, we never had voting on it, Ed Fang tweeted out working on new NFL predictions for members, 
and I just hate that this 14.9 yard per pass by att- attempt by Ryan Fitzpatrick, it's going to affect Tampa Bay's ratings all year, even with Winston back. And if New Orleans defense returns to respectable, Tampa Bay's offense will be overrated. And Sprager retweets, you know, quote tweets, this is Michael Scott driving into the lake because the GPS told him to. Like, it's just, it's right. just, it's just <laughs> perfect. Like, you had this model, you know, it's right. It's just like, no, nope, I'm going to throw my hands up and I'm just going to drive right into the lake. This yeah. Is- <laughs> Like it's it's so it's, I know what's wrong. I know why it's wrong. I know how to fix it. But yeah, nah. <laughs> but I'm just but and I'm just gonna leave it. And then you hear like Rufus, and this was before Rufus actually started to like turn to the dark side. Like this is a couple years ago, and like even you could hear Rufus Rufus being incredulous. Like what? What did you just say? You have this model that's purposely worse than right. another model. Like it's just yeah. I mean I don't know why he gets such a pass from us, but he but he seems to get a, a pretty good pass. Uh, by the way, while I'm here. Have you ever heard this clip? Hold on. Let me see if I can. Uh... This is uh, Tommy G. Do you know who Tommy G is? I know who Tommy G is from the beef that he had that I think you're about to play the clip from. But yeah. I don't know him outside that. Yeah, I don't know if anybody's ever heard this. But, you know, I know you love Brett Favre stories. So uh, here, here's this one. Oh, but head-to-head golf is great. You just go after Brett Favre. That's all I do. Just, everyone <laughs> in the industry just brutalizes this kid every day. Like, I don't know what the hell. Like, I don't Does know, he know I, anything about golf? He must have infinite amounts of money. Because uh, this is the kid I went after on Draft Street last year when I had that first big public head-to-head when I beat him in that series. But, I mean, he's the biggest crap talker of anyone. Anyone. More than me. Like, he, he follows zero people. Like, he, has zero, he follows zero people. Like, that's the type of person he is. So... And he's he's got the biggest ego. Now, do you feel bad? No. Now that's prison Mike from the office, Tommy G, basically saying that Brett Favre is a fish. Like, I mean, I don't even know where to right. I don't even know where to start with that. That's just like I'll never forget I was I was like sitting outside one day and I was listening to that and I couldn't even believe what I was hearing. Like it's just Meanwhile, this is a guy who basically uses all his affiliate revenue from Fantasy Guru or Guru Elite or whatever it's called. And then they like I said, they sold that basketball package that basically had to get shut down because everybody was broke after four four days it's just it's absurd it's just yeah you know and then of all people going after after brett and it's it's ridiculous that's so funny the part like he must have infinite money or something yeah Yeah, guess what yeah yeah (laughs) maybe yeah Yeah. jesus spin who has better legs you or rufus uh i have better legs but rufus has got the better camel toe and i think that burning man picture that is something that uh seared into my brain unfortunately forever oh wow i haven't seen it i'm oh, afraid you have, to look at it oh now. you haven't seen that one uh, go to like my tweets and replies and you'll see the burning man picture in the bottom right picture a meme i sent to it's a con it's 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 uh it's disturbing media it's disturbing oh wow yeah this is uh that's quite something yeah it's just disturbing nope <laughs> like no no cod piece or anything just it's a weird guy. Got got it packed in there pretty tight. I don't I don't know. So it's upsetting that picture. David Hess, favorite audacity of blank account. Dave, none of them. They're all terrible. But in fairness to you, like all Twitter accounts are terrible, but all of your accounts are, are really bad. <laughs> Before I forget who are the top legit top sports betters from Real Talk. Now, I I know he wants a joke here, but I think Sam covered all the joke options last podcast. I don't know if I'm doxing this guy. I don't think I am. I mean I think I think I think Rito's pretty good. I think Although he probably would un- undersell stuff, I think um, Perpetual Check is probably the silent assassin on Twitter. 
he doesn't tweet that much, but uh, I think he's I think he's pretty sharp. And I had someone from Sevo correct me on that. I once I once thought he was only a poker player, and uh, I was informed that I was extremely wrong. <laughs> uh, Diggs tweets out of the 264 accounts you follow, which one is the worst? They're all really really bad. However. I actually don't follow 264 people. My Twitter list is actually what I work off of. I follow people just to be nice because they follow me as well. Um, so I follow back. But I think the wor- I think the worst one is probably Peasy, right? Peasy with the Whole Foods comments, the Twitter long, and the Cincinnati Zoo pictures. It's 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 just an intolerable feed. Oh, and the Oakland Oakland sports teams tweets. It's just intolerable. Um, and by <laughs> I don't the way, think this is that bad. Uh, and by the way. I'd like to bring up a, a point of order. So PZ tweet out, p- tweets out about all the heroes that we lost this decade, and he tweets out Sky King, Rip, and never mentions Groovin. And uh, Norm Gamble's asked him for an update, of which we never received an update. So it would be nice if PZ... Um, oh, I thought that was like a commemorate. I thought that was like the phrase you guys used for Groovin. No, no, Sky King is Sky King. You know who Sky King is? No. Oh my god, you don't know who Sky King is? This was no. a he was a um a guy who worked at the airport. He stole an airplane. Um <laughs> he did a barrel roll in an airplane that can't do a barrel roll. He flew it around to go like sightseeing and then he suicided because he was having mental issues. But like it was the crazy oh, gotcha. it, it was like the craziest thing ever. Like literally was making the airplane do things that aerodynamically it's like not supposed to do. Like it's not supposed to do a par- barrel roll in a passenger passenger airplane but he did one and it's all on it's all on video and then if you read the if you listen to the air traffic controller chat with the guy it's 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 pretty emotional sky king became a pretty big uh, rallying cry for i don't know freedom of expression and stuff like that but so pz remembered to 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 remember him but didn't remember groovin which was pretty pathetic and a 6.9 mile grueling marathon who wins conquer barnwell so this is interesting this question. This is also from PZ. It's probably the only good content he's ever posted. Um, <laughs> Kunk would have won initially when he did the first marathon where I donated to him, but then Barnwell got skinny, right? So I think Barnwell may have been able to win for a short amount of time. But if you've seen Barnwell on TV recently, he's just like given up. Like, I don't know if like the staples in the lap band exploded, but he's given up. So Yeah, I heard that. I think Rick and I talked about that on the podcast. No, I, yeah. I didn't I didn't realize he had gained it all back. Oh, it's, it's, tough. it's 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 to see that. It's disgraceful. I mean he's on TV too. It's unwatchable. So yeah, I think Kunk wins now. So there's it was it, the answer is Kunk, Barnwell, Kunk. Oh, Beirut asks, sports betting or ultra running, and you have to give one up. Uh, I would give up sports betting tomorrow. I may I may give up tomorrow regardless. Um, right. <laughs> once I can't run or I can't jog or whatever, you know, I think that's that's it for me. I don't think that the goal of life is to live forever. I think it's to enjoy life. And the minute I can't I can't do the things that I want to do, I want out. Best hike you've ever taken. Bonus points if it's dog friendly from Seth Byrne. Yeah, you know, so in Colorado, there are these 14 peaks over a certain elevation are called uh, Nolan's 14. There's nothing like Colorado and hiking up those hiking up those mountains. There really isn't. I would suggest everybody at least goes to Colorado and does that at least once. That's by far the the nicest place that I've that I've hiked. And it's just like, you know, the altitude kind of sucks like if you're not used to it, so like either you have to acclimate or you've got to get there that day and just, you know, power through it. I mean, there's nothing like Colorado. It's it's awesome. And I I I think we're done. That was the last question I had. Damn. Yeah. That was uh, that was definitely a long podcast. It was four hours. <laughs> Hopefully, people listen to it. No one's listening well, to this. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if anyone makes it to the end. Um, yeah, it was good though. I mean, there was just a lot of info. Yeah. Sorry. 
I mean, I wish I knew more about crypto. I could have chimed in there. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, yeah, if, if anybody's got questions, just you know, shoot them over to me. Yeah, and I mean, I'm never doing anyone, and I'm never doing something like this ever again. So this is the the one time. Yeah, it's perfect. Good platform. Yeah. So four hours. That's it for me. You'll never hear from me again. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks.